Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you want to say? Um, <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. Hey, up, you pop crazy youngsters, and welcome to the latest episode of Chart Music. The podcast that puts his face between an episode of Top of the Pops and goes blubble, blubble, blubble. <laughs> I'm your host, Al Needham, and standing by me today are Neil Kulkarne. Hello there. And Taylor Parks. Hello. Boys, the pop things, the interesting things, tell me all about them. Um, well, I have been to a pop thing, actually. I went to a show in London at a band no. called... Oh, yes. A real pop show, band in London. Get you. Yeah, get me. Big Thief, they're called. I really quite like them. Although the bloody mm. audience, man. Um, oh. Just compulsory shit moustaches everywhere. Is that just the look now? Oh. But yeah, no, I've been to see some nice pop shows. I'm getting just annoyed about this bloody Indian summer because I was all set yeah. for autumn, um, mm. getting ready for coats and jackets back on again and not feeling like my trouser pockets are overly burdened. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a horrible feeling that. But um, no, it's back. I'm hot as... Fuck, I'm sweating like a pig digging a ditch. I've got my sleeves on my T-shirt rolled up like I'm wearing a sort of metal vest or something. Well, like John Cougar Mellencamp. Quite. <laughs> quite. you got your pack of fags tucked under. Tucked in, one of tucked them. in, yeah. yeah, my marble red. Neil but... Cougar Kulkarni. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, normally, obviously, I think I've said in the past, in the summer I always worry that my, my, my I don't get... I don't do stuff with my kids, you know what I mean? So mm. I'm always worried that they're going to go back and draw a picture of a tin of Pringles and stuff as to what they did in their <laughs> summer. But no, this year, unaccountably, my youngest has, has sort of dragged me out, you know, and taken oh. me out on wildlife rambles and things <laughs> out in country parts, which actually is very good for me. My doctors will be very happy, but um, it does bring me face to face with my biggest, um, my fear, my, my biggest hatred, which is insects in general oh. I, just, I loathe all insect life but in particular if I'm near water uh, dragonflies I just fucking hate dragonflies and they can smell my, they can smell fear those things they, they, mm. I run shrieking from them and they chase me um, and my children <laughs> laugh at me and that's what I've been doing this summer basically running away from dragonflies fearsome little bastards oh. do you run about with your hands in the air like crystal tips <laughs> <laughs> no I haven't been but I will from here on in Good lad, <laughs> Taylor. Yeah, I'm. I'm sat here. I've got all the windows closed uh, to mm. drown out the neighbours blethering. Uh, got the door shut. I'm sat here in my low ceiling room. Uh, it's like being a, it ain't half hot, mum. I've got like the bead <laughs> of sweat on my top lip. I'm gonna put on my khaki shirt and uh, look like Stuart McGugan by the end of it. It's not good. I'm a bit under the weather this week as it is. So 
Bear oh, with mate. me as I come across as a disagreeable human being. Um, <laughs> yeah, the most exciting thing that happened to me this week, I was texting someone the other day mm. and uh, I typed the word Patrick into my phone. Yeah. Um, and predictive text based on my texting history decided that my most likely choice for the next word would be mower. <laughs> and I thought that says something really terrible about my life. And what says something even more terrible about my life is that actually was the next word. No, Taylor, mate. Uh-huh. <laughs> what was the conversation about? Patrick, Patrick Moore, obviously, but... <laughs> Yes. But but which one of his many facets? Um, I was bemoaning the downturn in quality of the series Special Branch when he <laughs> takes over the main action man role. <laughs> Not quite as disastrous a dip as when he took over from Anthony Valentine in Callan, which is oh. really was like replacing the Mona Lisa with a child's drawing of a pig. Yeah, this sexting telly, you haven't really got the hang of it yet, have you? <laughs> well, you know, give me a break. It was 2.30 a.m. But hold fast, pop crazy youngsters. You know how we do in the one nine or whatever you call it nowadays. You know we do nothing in chart music before we stop and bow the knee to the lovely people who have slipped that dollar down the collective G-string. So the latest batch of people who have dropped $5 this month are Neil S., Dan White, Michael Strong, Paul Thompson, Lee Swanick, Thomas Danny, Matthias Recker, Sarah LeClaire, Miles Jackson, Matt Savine, John Mackey, and Laura Lean. Aren't they fucking lovely people, them? God bless yeah. them. They bloody won us the war, they did. And in the $3 section, we have Dan Ober, Tobin Ober, Dickie from the Hot Pots, Russell Clark, and Joris Gillet. Them heavy people hit chart music in a soft spot. Them heavy people help chart music. And if you want to join them in keeping the greatest podcast in the world about old episodes of Top of the Pops going, you need to take them fingers over to the keyboard. You need to type in patreon.com slash chart music and you need to fill that G-string with whatever you can offer. Remember that URL, Pop Craze Youngsters. Give me a hand, chaps. Patreon.com slash chart music. Patreon.com slash chart music. Patreon.com slash chart music. You can do it right now, please. I felt like I was in downtown Kingston or or Uxbridge. And of course, if you're paying your subs, you're contributing to the latest top ten, as compiled for chart music by the Pop Craze Patreons and the British Market Research Bureau. Hit the music! Down one place from nine to ten, it's Clit Richard. Down three from number six to number nine, here comes Jism. It's a three-place drop for the dub-plate pressure of Bergerac meets Rockers Uptown, now at number eight. But it's a two-place jump from number nine to number seven for your dark mates. A former number one down this week from number two to number six, Sarah B and Rakim. (laughs) It's a new entry at number five for Gug City Slaggers. (laughs) Another new entry at number four, a group 
who choose to call themselves the Queen's Fanny. <laughs> Into the top three and no change at number three for Bomber Dog. Uh, this week's number two and the highest new entry, the whiff of the Cato Meat, which means Britain's number one. It's still there at number one for the second week running. Man to man meet Al Needham. Uh, congratulations. Well done, Al. Well done. What a chart that is. Well, who can account for the whimsical nature of the chart music uh, subscribers, eh? You can never predict this chart. I mean, obviously, Gug City Sliggers are releasing their commemorative single for the Oxenania <laughs> FA Cup final, but... Um, <laughs> What are the Queen's family like? What what what's their what's their game? What art school punk? Mm. I was thinking just a more ribald Baron Knights <laughs> and uh, the whiff of the Academy, obviously. Yeah. Sleazy synth pop. <laughs> yeah, it would be. Yeah, which is better than your cooking, mummy? Do you remember that advert for Academy? Oh yeah, and there was that one where the, that that was that Arthur wanted who could get some cat food out of a tin with his paw, <laughs> and which was like the, one of the most remarkable things anyone had ever fucking seen in a in a pre social media age. Yeah, yeah, no YouTube. All these people in <laughs> like Russia sat there fuming. <laughs> My cat fails <laughs> jump from snow covered car. Well, we're in a sad age now where I, I think even older people, like people past eighty. Watching mm. an advert and seeing a talking animal, I don't think anymore they would go, how's that done then? Ooh, I wonder... Oh, I- my mum's like that. <laughs> Seriously, she'd go, she'd go, are those elephants really dancing like that? <laughs> All right, no, mum, it's CGI. She says, what's CGI? And then I forget and yeah. I just say, oh, it's computers. That's a catch-all answer for the older generation. <laughs> it's, it's computers. Yeah, 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 it's, yeah. yeah it's, it's all computers. <laughs> so, this... Episode Pop Craze Youngsters sees us at the halfway point of our Critics' Choice miniseries, and this time the hand of fate falls upon the shoulder of Mr. Taylor Parks. And t- uh, yeah, well, first of all, unfortunately, my actual favourite episode of Top of the Pops is currently out of bounds on account of a uh, particular jingling, jangling unpleasantness, which we're not going to address just yet. So rather than settle for a Mm. shameful second best, I thought, fuck it, let's just go right back and watch the earliest, complete, non-Christmas, non-pedo-helmed episode in the archive. Because it will at least be interesting. We haven't done a 60s episode. There aren't Mm. many of them. It's always nice to watch things from before you were born. Mm. Um, and generally, apart from your parents conceiving you, <laughs> so yeah, because that was wiped by the BBC. Um, <laughs> this is my choice of episode to watch and talk about. March uh, the sixth, nineteen sixty nine. Yeah, so it's it's. I thought it would be the most interesting rather than the best, mm. as will become obvious when we see what's actually on it. Yes, um, I was tempted to be perverse and pick a particular Ed Stewart-hosted episode from 1970, mm. which is unquestionably the shittest Top of the Pops I've ever seen. It's just wall-to-wall <laughs> granny music, to the point where me and my mate were watching it, throwing things at the screen and <laughs> shouting, where's the rock? But, um, I, no, I didn't. Okay, chaps, if I said to you the music of 1969, what what is immediately hitting you? Well, it's heavy. Yep. 
And it's none of this shit, really. Perhaps too heavy. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, no, we, the, what we do find here is that Top of the Pops is now just slightly off the pace culturally. Yeah. Because this is already the yeah. 60s. And <laughs> yes, it there's is. There's a new uh, sort of darkness and hardness and paranoia yeah. and bleakness and nihilism in pop music and in society. But it's. It's not represented here because this is about the singles charts, which had been mm. abandoned by the heavy groups. Um, yeah. And also because this is still a light entertainment program. And mm. it's a really no- Very much really so. noticeable thing about pre-glam Top of the Pops. It's like the televisual impact of the hit groups from this period is not so yeah. great that they can seize control of the show just by yeah. their presence. Mm. So the tone of the show is still being set by the production team rather than the yes. S. So there's no star man yes. moments. It's, you know. Uh, and so, yeah, you end up with something that, in a sense, you think, well, this doesn't really tell the story of 1969. But obviously, in another sense, it absolutely no, yeah. does. Yeah, it probably tells a true story in a yes. sense. Because, I mean, if, uh, yeah. like most of us, we yeah. go backwards to the 60s from a sort of vantage point of the 80s, really, 1969, well, it's, mm. you know, we go back to albums, don't we? So so you go back to 69 and it's the yeah. Stooges' first album, Let It Bleed and Trap Mass Replica and all these amazing records. Um and and it's the year in a rock historical sense of Woodstock and Altamont and, and all of that. But none of that appears here at all. No one's going to get shot in this episode. No, no, no. But, but crucially, the, the, the tension of that year coming out of 1968 and sort of in dread of what was going to happen in the 70s. I mean, for me, that period's best summed up rock and roll wise in books actually the stanley booth book true adventures of the rolling stones mm. and, and parts of grail marcus's mystery train really get that late 60s doomy kind of vibe um spot on and yeah. you know you get that sense that something's ending and something new and fearful is starting up but of course you don't see jack shit about on top of the parks no 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 what no, what no, no, we no, get no. here it's a bit peculiar because this program uh it still has something of the tea and manor house cake uh drawing room <laughs> yeah. feel of jukebox yeah. jewelry or uh, or mm. six five special you know like we don't yes. have the outrageous frugging dolly birds yet. <laughs> um no or the, the sort of unsafe teenage party yeah. atmosphere uh that mm. creeps in in the next year or two it's still very firmly set in the old days like sort of church or yeah. dance yeah. well even though they'd They'd stopped actually filming Top of the Pops in a church hall, but you know mm. that's the it's, feel. While already, you know, outside, that's like people are listening to Bitches Brew. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Like there's a there's a sit-in in the college canteen, and uh, people in great coats are taking morphine, and <laughs> Richard Burton is bumming Ian McShane. Uh, <laughs> what a great film that is! Uh, but stuff had already changed out there in popular culture and in society, but only for about 300 people. Yeah, that's yes. it. It's a reminder that for, for the vast majority of people, yeah, all of that stuff was happening somewhere else. Yeah. I mean, when I was snapping up old records left and right in the mid-80s because I was sick of the fucking charts, mm-hmm. um, it, it took me absolutely ages to dare approach 1969 because I'm that age where late 60s, hippiness... Uh, it, the whiff of the patchouli oil just put me <laughs> off. But as soon as I got into it, I fucking loved it. 
I think the first album from that from that year I ever bought was Stand by Sly and the Family Stone. Wow. It's like, oh yeah. fucking hell, yes, yeah, more start. of this, please. Yeah. Yes, but but in the from the deodorized vantage point of the mid eighties, the the whiffiness of the late sixties was precisely its appeal. I mean, I I followed yeah. Daft Blind Alleys and end up listening to fucking ten years after live albums and shit just to get away <laughs> from the eight uh, from the eighties. Um, yeah, for me, sixty nine. It is. It's a year of those albums. Things like Stand. Um, but just so much good. I mean, Miles is making In a Silent Way and Can are making Monster Movie and, and Fairport Convention are making so many good records as well. You know, Dusty in Memphis comes out this year. It's an amazing year yeah. for albums. But yeah, like, like top of the, that's not Top of the Pops' job. I mean, and of course, we've had 1969 rammed up our arse of late due to the 50th anniversary of the moon landing in Woodstock. And uh, 1969 seems to be a very American year, doesn't it? You know, all the things that are going off, both good and bad. Mm-hmm. Tend to be from over here, you know, Apollo 11, Altamont, uh, people burning the draft cards, Easy Rider, Sharon Tate, Woodstock, Midnight Cowboy. I mean, this is the era. We look back on the 60s as being, you know, one of the peak eras for to be British. But by 1969, America's practically sitting on our heads and farting on us. Yeah, <laughs> Britain is just someone trundling down the road in a pale blue Austin. <laughs> mm. Like a bit of rain on the windscreen. Yeah. yeah, it's summed up perfectly by if you watch, um, say, if you watch Gimme Shelter, that Stones film, yes, and watch the Hell's Angels in that bit, yes. that movie, and then compare them with the Hell's <laughs> Angels that do the security at High High Park. Yes, there's just such a massive difference between between those two cultures. We are a lot softer and gentler and a bit more bumbling, basically. Mm. Yeah, you can see it as well. Like it's in America, like Rolling Stone had started publication. You know, now Rolling Stone was always a really quite a commercial paper and that it was catering to uh, an audience where there was mm. money but you know it had these pretensions as being countercultural and stuff and there was you know there was all these sort of uh, you know underground papers going around in britain there were uh, you know you you did have underground papers but when you look at the actual music press it's still kind of it, it's like the trade papers you know it's still got mm. that it's still got that slightly trad jazzy feel to it. You know, it hasn't yeah. caught up. So you you still get like these news stories about M- Engelbert Humperdinck's new TV series <laughs> or what the three remaining monkeys are up to, you know. You know, when we had all the Apollo 11 50th anniversary stuff, uh, you know, I, w- I was reading quite a lot of that and it would be, you know, here's this woman who wrote like a big stack of mathematical equations to get this thing on the moon. And, oh, here's this bloke from Britain who watched it on a big telescope. Yeah. (laughs) That was our big contribution to Apollo 11, looking at it. There's a brilliant documentary that uh, was made, like, years ago for one of the previous anniversaries of the moon landing uh, by the BBC. And it's got clips in it, like a montage of clips of reactions from all around the world. And there's people in America going, oh, my God, man, we're on the moon. And people in France going like, oh, congratulations. And then eventually (laughs) they get round to Britain and it's an old lady sat on a deck chair at the beach. And she... (laughs) And she goes, I think it's bloody terrible. Why, why are they doing this? They should do something for the oldens. <laughs> <laughs> they, every penny spent, every penny given to NASA and just put it into Meals on Wheels. Yeah, <laughs> they, yeah they want to give it to Nono, not NASA. <laughs> <laughs> like your Meals on Wheels gets there in 0.2 of a second. 
pill form. <laughs> but, oh, oh, come on, Taylor. You know, I know who you want to talk about. What? The other great uh, opinion about the moon from uh, from Britain. Oh, yeah. This, this one clip that, that you showed me, Taylor, yeah. is fucking glorious. T- tell, tell the pop craze youngsters all about it. Well, I don't want to spoiler it for anyone who can rush to the playlist and watch it, but it's a, a retired spring maker from Redditch <laughs> being interviewed on ATV News <laughs> about why he <laughs> thinks the Americans never landed on the moon. And all I can say is... Uh, his conspiracy theory is not your conspiracy theory. <laughs> no, no. You got a postcard off Neil Armstrong, didn't mm, it? Uh, Neil Armstrong supposedly. took the time to go, mate, I did it. What the fuck are you going on about? And he's still not having it. I have a suspicion someone is uh, riding him with that postcard. Yeah. But, so for about the third time, the presenter says to him, so you, you, you still don't believe the Americans went to the moon? He goes, no. <laughs> he says, "He says, well, why don't you believe it?" And he looks smug and goes, "I don't." <laughs> Anyone who grew up in the Midlands will understand that kind of line yeah. of argument from someone who's a little bit older than you. And just look down mm. in as you, "I don't." Okay. Well, case closed. Radio One. In the news this week, the Cray twins have been sent down for life. The USSR and China have a bit of a skirmish across the Yuzuri River. A planned spacewalk on the Apollo 9 mission is cancelled after an astronaut texts badly. Concorde has been on its maiden flight in Toulouse. Sir Anne Saran admits in court that he murdered Robert Kennedy. Contraceptive pills for dogs are being trialled in the UK. The Victoria line is to be officially open tomorrow. Assorted angry Welsh people are kicking off and threatening protests and worse during the forthcoming investiture of the Prince of Wales. Paul McCartney is getting ready to get married to Linda Eastman early next week. Arrest warrants have been issued for Jim Morrison after he got his knob out at a gig in Florida. But the big news this week is in tomorrow's Daily Mirror. Headline... Name change for Mr. Sex. (laughs) The brawny village blacksmith has finished with sex forever. He told his wife and four pretty daughters, I'm browned off with it. For fate had dealt a cruel blow. Sex was their surname. Until 40-year-old Jeff Sex had it changed by deed poll. (laughs) Jeff Sex! That's a fantastic name. Why would you change that? The mickey-taking went on and on. It got too much, he said. Four other members of his family have changed their name too, but not Bachelor Charles Sex of Richmond Park Road, Kingston-upon-Thames. I'm quite happy with sex, he said. (laughs) Also, I love how they say uh, he's notified his four pretty daughters. So he didn't mention yes. it to the ugly one because they, they, no. they lost the key to the trunk. <laughs> <laughs> On the cover of The Enemy this week, The Small Faces. On the cover of The TV Times, Linda Thorson. The number one LP in the UK at the moment is Diana Ross and the Supremes Join the Temptations. Over in America, the number one single is Everyday People by Sly and the Family Stone. Yes. And the number one LP in America is Wichita Lineman by Glenn Campbell. Hey. Lovely. Yeah. 
Linda Thorson. Presumably, this is just after she took over as uh, in uh, the Avengers. From yes. I see. Tell me, boys, what were our parents doing in March of 1969? Uh, well, they they were they were pregnant um, with my sister. Um, they didn't yeah. know that. They thought he, uh, she was going to be a boy. So that was mm. going to be me. Yeah. Presumably, Neil Armstrong already in the news said had already chosen yeah. that name. Um, but it wasn't to oh, be. Man. Could have been sex called Connor. They're going out of the newspapers. If they bought the mirror that day, yeah, no. Yeah. But I often wonder, you know, those three years difference. I know it doesn't count for much. But by the time you get through to the 80s, it does start counting, actually, um, those yes. three years, being three years younger. Um, mm. I wouldn't have minded being born in six. What, the year I would have liked to have been born in the most, I think, would be about. Uh, 52, something like that. So I was 17, right. 18, coming up for the end of the 60s. Yeah. But it does make you think, what would I have been into in 69? All this great music going on, I probably would have been into some right old shit. Yeah. Engelbert. <laughs> yeah, yeah, possibly. And even if I was a music critic, I'd, I'd be totally missing the boat. I'd be... I'd be writing earnest articles about why the electric prunes point the way to the 70s or something. Mm. Um, yeah, I would have got. I would have <laughs> probably missed out on all the good stuff. Think about being named after Neil Armstrong. If, mm-hmm. if it hadn't been for the the terrible tragedy of Apollo One, first yeah. man mm-hmm. on the moon, uh, most likely to have been Gus Grissom. There you go, Gus, Gus Kulkarni. <laughs> it's got yes, a ring that to it. That's brilliant. even better than Buzz, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <sighs> Neil. Yeah, and there's so many bloody kids born round about that time. Yes. Cool. Yeah, Neil. I know. I, I I had a fair quota of Neils at my school. Yeah. Well, Neil, Neil, Orange Peel. I'm sick of it. Taylor what's really peculiar for me is the thought that my parents who were really pretty straight and nobody's beatniks uh, spent quite a lot of the late 60s on motorbiking holidays in Ibiza uh, around about the time when it would have been full of Nico and all these (laughs) opiated burnt out disaster areas which i presume they just rode straight past you know or over yeah never encountered but i mean they'd already been married for seven or eight years so Mm. like they got hitched you know between the end of the chatterley band and the beatles first lp so unlike a lot of people my age i didn't grow up with hippie parents at all but the older I get, yeah. the more I realise that my dad, especially although he was fairly conservative in a lot of ways, was part of that sort of in-between generation who mm. were sort of looking for greater freedom than their parents. But the social apparatus wasn't there yet. So it all came out a little bit mild and a little bit trad mm. jazz. Uh, so, yeah, they they were on a, on a, a sort of a fut, 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 tiny motorbike. Uh, riding across the blasted landscape of Ibiza, bizarrely. I'm the only one who was alive at that time. Uh, I was 10 months old, uh, living in 7 Plimsoll Street in Ice and Green. Um, My mum and dad were still working at the Lesbian Door Factory. That's what it was known as. It was a small factory in Sherwood that made doors, obviously, and it was staffed entirely by lesbians. How? how? Well, Nottingham still had the big three factories, you know, Boots, Rally and Players, but there were so many other smaller factories dotted around Nottingham Uh that if you were a factory worker, you could pick and choose where you wanted to work. You know, you could leave one job on a Friday and start a a place where your mates worked on, on the Monday. 
So people were really picky about where they wanted to work. They just wanted to be with their mates and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. And this door factory was known for being, you know, quite open about lesbians, well, I suppose. Nice. How progressive. They all wanted to work together. And, yeah. they, you know, this company was like, yeah, we don't give a shit who yeah, you yeah. want to lob it up or whatever. So they all worked <laughs> together. And my mum and dad, I think they were the only straight people that worked there. My mum made doors and my dad drove them about in a lorry. Oh. You know, because my mum was still working, I'd be packed off every day to my granny's in St Anne's. And uh, so I'd be spending a time in a so, sort of on a play mat surrounded by a, a wooden cage made out of pallets that her brother had made that still had nails sticking out of it. <laughs> <laughs> there was a documentary that was broadcast this very month on ITV that was made by Stephen Frears about poverty in St Anne's because apparently it was one of the worst places to live in the country. And uh, yeah, if you're interested in socialist or you're, you're a Brexit twat, um, <laughs> go on the video playlist, look for the video uh, St Anne's 1969 and then... You know, come back here and tell me how great the good old days were. So, yeah, before we pile into um, what's on telly today, you know, whenever we do a a chart music from the mid-90s or whatever, Simon always comes forth with a a breakdown of what was in that issue of Melody Maker. And I found a PDF of the issue of Melody Maker that was out this very week. So shall we go through it? Yes. On the cover, there are three main news stories. A pop proms is being organised for the Royal Albert Hall in July and they're hoping to get together a supergroup featuring Eric Clapton, Stevie Winwood and Ginger Baker. This doesn't happen, but the seven-night programme featured Led Zeppelin, Fleetwood Mac, The Pentangle, Amen Corner, Marmalade, The Incredible String Band, Famle, The Dubliners, The Who and Chuck Berry. Other news story is Louis Armstrong's back in hospital in New York as he's in critical condition. And Peter Sarstedt has celebrated his recent chart success by flying to Copenhagen to see his girlfriend, who's a dentist. (laughs) (laughs) Other news. Bob Dylan has completed his next LP, which will be released in a month's time and will be called Nashville Skyline. Bill Graham is trying to organise a package tour of British acts across America, including The Who, Jeff Beck, Joe Cocker, Jethro Tull, Ten Years After, and Procol Horum. The Beatles have turned down a million (laughs) dollars each to play four American concerts this summer. John Peel has announced that the brand new Concorde should be used to house the homeless. And Leapy Lee has cancelled his tour of the USA and Australia to concentrate on his third album. <laughs> oh, man, who says? Who said America had it all in 1969? <laughs> Those little arrows are pointing downwards. <laughs> Inside the paper, well, Scott Walker's described Bob Dylan as someone who writes marvellous lyrics and fraudulent melodies. He also says he doesn't want to put out a single because he couldn't bear to work on a beautiful record and have it beaten in the charts by something like Lily the Pink (laughs) and points out that he can't stand performing in northern clubs where people are drinking and chattering. (laughs) Oh, bless Scott. He was always a little oversensitive and a little overprecious, despite being a genius. Is that also the interview where he says he couldn't bear to see any single of his... Beaten by Lily the Pink or that thing that's number one. (laughs) Yes. 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 I'm with him. I'm with him. But more of that later. Richard Harris talks about his follow-up to MacArthur Park and threatens to bring out an LP of his poetry. (laughs) 
<laughs> the Hollies talk about life after Graham Nash in the BBC bar after last week's Top of the Pops, and they talk about how shocked they were at still having screaming girl fans, and they also talk about their plans to record an LP of Dylan covers. And Jimi Hendrix talks about trying to get Miles Davis to lead a jam session at his funeral and says, when you're dead, you're made for life. (laughs) Oh, Jimmy. Single reviews. Well, the single of the week is the Small Faces double A side, Wham Bam Thank You Ma'am, an afterglow of your love. Pinball Wizard by The Who is a track which will appeal to both pin table and Who fans alike. Aretha Franklin's cover of The Weight is dismissed as vocal gymnastics, while Trifle's cover of The Beatles' All Together Now is pleasing. Mm. Meanwhile, the Cats and X Cats Singing Orchestral Circus, a supergroup of eight US bubblegum bands, including Ohio Express and the 1910 Fruit Gum Company, that get slagged down. Oh dear. Mm. But the biggest slagging is for Nancy Sinatra's God Knows I Love You, which goes as follows. Ah... But does God care? If we are going to be blasphemous, that is indeed the obvious question the young cynics of Britain are going to ask. As our leaders are not concerned with building a worthwhile socialist state, it is hardly surprising that youth has an opportunity to be idle and indulge in cynicism, drug-taking and street violence. Meanwhile, this bourgeois musical decadence is fed like opium to the masses, a symbol of so-called Western culture. Oh, for God's sake, Melody Maker, were you even at the (laughs) same single that I was at? Um, (laughs) Talk about the music, for God's sake. There's five pages of LP reviews, the majority of which are dispatched with a mere sentence. LP of the month is Blood, Sweat and Tears by Blood, Sweat and Tears, described as the finest album released in months. The Best of the Rest section features the debut LP by Peter Sarstedt, Goodbye by Cream, no drum solos on this one, but all three are in superb form, Stonehenge by Ten Years After, the compilation Rock Machine I Love You, Reuben and the Jets by the Mothers of Invention and the Amazing Adventures of Liverpool scene. The review of Wichita Lyman by Glenn Campbell reads, In full, fine selection of different songs by the man with Wichita Lyman in the chart. Varied selection of material. <laughs> so not only, is that got, uh, not only does that review repeat itself, <laughs> it repeats itself three times. Because you can't have yeah. a varied selection of the same song. Yeah. No. It's no. like a review from a Hi-Fi Separates magazine or something. Yeah. That's really, really <laughs> mad. Now, I had to look through some old Melody Makers too, and what struck me about the review section, uh, the singles reviews are mostly preoccupied with whether or not a record is going to be a hit yes, rather than anything else, which is mm. really old-fashioned for 1969. Yes. And yeah, the the hilarious thing about the album selection is you just every week there's about eight albums have come out, which in future years will be regarded as uh, significant classics, and they just get yeah uh, uh, next. Um, yeah. yeah, I got one here from uh, a couple of months later, um, yeah. and it's got a review of uh, Nick Drake's Five Leaves Left. Um, right, with the review in full reads. Interesting debut album from composer, singer, guitarist Drake. (laughs) (laughs) (coughs) Which doesn't even tell you what kind of music it is. 
It's like, no. what, who is he? What is he a blues guitarist? Is he a, what is he? I don't know. And that same week, um, also released was Unhalf Bricking by Fairport Convention. Uh, yeah. Stand by Slayer the Family yes. Stand. Yeah, yeah. Happy Sad by Tim Buckley. All just tossed off in one sentence. The only album that gets a full length review, by which I mean about 350 words, is mm. that week's most important release, which is Stand Up Baby by Jethro Tull. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, it's amazing stuff to read. I, I've got it here. Well, yeah. If Only for a Moment by the Blossom Toes gets a review that says, good original material and nice performances add up to a well-above-average group album. <laughs> it's incredible That's to think great. that whoever wrote this will have had their own desk and yeah. like an expense account and, yeah, yeah. you know, a house <laughs> the thing is, though, I mean, it, 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 those albums—the Nick Drake one, the Sly and the Family Stone one—you know, you, you could say that by the late eighties, let's say, that consensus that that was irrelevant and yeah, I don't know, Jethro Tull were more important had been overthrown. I wish mm. that would happen with the stuff that was getting big reviews in the nineties. Say, we're still yeah. accepting that Oasis were what the 90s were all about. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. Whereas yeah. it's probably those little things that got 50, 100-word reviews that were fucking amazing that we should be concentrating on. That di- that has now happened with the 60s, looking back at that music press, but it's not happened yet with uh, with stuff from 20 years ago from now. There's so much shit being released. Yeah. Mm, mm. Oh, yeah. Fucking tons of it. Across a lot of genres, yeah. And they feel they have to review everything. It does have the, the feel of a trade paper, doesn't it? it- yeah. Well, it's, By 1969. It, it's probably still printing jukebox receipts and stuff like that, you know, yeah. like it used to. So it's it's yeah, it's crossing that music week slash critical journal divide. Yeah, the gig guide this week. Well, David could have seen Led Zeppelin at the Hornsey Wood Tavern, the Move <laughs> at the Lyceum, or Benny King at the Mistral in Beckenham, but probably didn't. Sarah could have seen Desmond Decker in Leeds. Taylor could have seen Scaffold in two different Birmingham clubs on the same night, or seen Alan Price and Friends at the Cavendish in Yardley, or gone down to Mothers in High Street, Erdington, to check out Straub's, Terry Reid, Country Joe and the Fish, and Spooky Tooth. Oh, sorry, Spooky Tooth. (laughs) Neil could have nipped over to the Connaught Hotel to see The Toast. Al could have seen Freddie King at the Boat Club or the Horace Faith show at the Broken Wheel scene in Retford. And Simon is pretty much fucked as there are no Welsh listings. So disrespectful to the Welsh. Uh Well, there was just no gigs. In the letters section, Danny Holloway and Boo Mix of Long Beach, California have a bit of a moan about having to pay over the odds for British LPs and the fact that their fave raves, the Small Faces, the Kinks, Manfred Mann and the Pretty Things never play in California and ends with the words, inform these groups that there is money and comfort waiting on the West Coast. Oh, yeah. And as well as mentalists who creep into other people's homes and murder them. Uh, Yeah. That word comfort doing a lot of work there, I think. Yes, very much so. (laughs) Blues fans, meanwhile, are up in arms about Fleetwood Mac selling out with their latest single, Albatross. (laughs) And John Paddy Carstairs of Kingston Hill picks holes in the lyric of Where Do You Go To My Lovely by Peter Sarstedt. He writes, The girl was born in a poor quarter of Italy, yet she has a French name. And what we are told of her, clothes, 
friendship, etc. She certainly wouldn't take her summer vacation in Juan Le Pan these days. The editor of the letters page points out that Costa is director Tommy the Toreador and a weekend with Lulu and is the producer and director of The Saint and therefore knows what he's going on about. <laughs> And Eric Whiteside of Belfast slags off Top of the Pops for not having Diana Ross and Supremes on all the time. Here, here, oh. sir. So, yeah, mm-hmm. 24 Absolutely. pages, one shilling. I never knew there was so much in it. <laughs> Just before we get off the music press, uh, there was another letter that jumped out at me this month uh, from Ed Walsh in Barnet Hots. And uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to, I'd like to read mm-hmm. it out. Top of the Pops seems to go from bad to worse every week. Recently on the new release spot, we were treated to the latest disc by Dick Emmeret. (laughs) (laughs) Moby Grape were in the country at the time and also had a single released. So why didn't we get a chance to see them on the programme? Even if they were unavailable, there were new singles around by The Locomotive, Neil MacArthur and Tyrannosaurus Rex, among others. These sort of people never seem to appear on television and Dick Emery has his own weekly series and thus has ample opportunity for plugging his own disc. Auntie, or Granny, BBC certainly looks after her own. I must add that I am not getting at Dick Emery personally. (laughs) but at the old idea of promoting an average run-of-the-mill ballad when there are far more interesting and progressive sounds around. Oh, BBC, you are awful. <laughs> but Ed Walsh doesn't like you. I love how he puts in that bit. I'm not having a go at Dick Emery personally, just in case <laughs> no. like Dick Emery gets a hump about this, comes out his house mm. and playfully gives him a shove on the shoulder. <laughs> That's a good letter. I wonder if they hired him yeah. to cover the bold new progressive heavy sounds that were going on. So what else was on telly this day? Well, BBC One starts the day at 9.38 with a three-hour schools and colleges mega blast, including merry-go-round, science session, maths today, watch, primary school mathematics and the history of Ghana. Followed by and apologies now to our Welsh listeners, Molly Anunoch Unochn, a big Welsh splurge of singing in that for St David's Day. I said that so fucking wrong. <laughs> I got Simon to phonetically spell it out for me, and I'm fucked it. <laughs> After Watch With Mother, Joe and the Fog, it's the afternoon news, followed by the Faye Weldon play Time Hurries On for the school's programme scene, then it's Play School with Carol Ward and Brian Kant, Jack and Ore, Blue Peter... Tales from Europe and the Magic Roundabout. After the news, Robert Robinson presents a look back at the 50s. Then it's the American sitcom Mothers-in-Law, the first of the new series of Top of the Form, the rural soap opera The Newcomers and One Minute of News Headlines. BBC Two kicks off at 11 with Play School and then shuts down for 7 hours and 40 minutes and they've just finished Engineering, Craft and Science. ITV begins at 11 with the school's programmes Messenger and Conflict, then shuts down for an hour and three quarters before returning at 20 to 2 with Picture Box, Heritage Maths, For and Against and First Steps in Physics. After the news, it's the daytime soap opera Honey Lane, then the puppet show Sugar Ball, The Little Jungle Boy, The Adventures of Robin Hood, The Return of Puff, The Welsh Mountain Pony and Magpie, then it's the news... Regional news in your area, 
Crossroads and they're half an hour into the film of the week. The 1957 Robert Taylor flick, Tip on a Dead Jockey. Tales from Europe. That was a kid's show, was it? Yes. Wouldn't be allowed now, would it? No. It would not be allowed. <laughs> <laughs> All right then, pop craze youngsters. It is now time to take your protein pills and put your helmet on. Because we're going way back to March of 1969. Always remember, we may code down your favourite band or artist, but we never forget, they've been on top of the pops more than we have. <laughs> It's Thursday, March the 6th, 1969, and Top of the Pops is now firmly bedded into the BBC schedule and slowly groping towards the format we know and love. But they're not there just yet. This episode would have been broadcast in colour, a switch which occurred a mere five months ago, but the footage that survives and that we're reviewing is in black and white. That affects it a lot, doesn't it? Black and white is so important to the way this episode works. Yeah. Um, you're not simply watching a previous format or a previous colour scheme when you're watching black and white. As a rock and roll years fan in the 80s, it always had an effect seeing old clips in the 60s from, from Top of the Pops. But seeing them mm. neatly recut for that show isn't the same as actually seeing the shows that they were cut from, like watching this whole episode, which you do as you get older, I think. And you realise that a lot of black and white telly is messier and consequently kind of more interesting than you thought. Um, yeah. You know, it, it just seems... F- black and white telly, what's great about it, and I, I constantly rinsing BBC iPlayer, the archive, for really old shows. Um, yeah. There's just this non-pleadiness and neediness about television in black and white. It seems much more full of mistakes, but at the same time, way, way more sure of itself. And the further we get away from it, the more that the kids and the geeks take over, in a sense, the more panicky and pleasing um, TV comes to be. With regards to Top of the Pops specifically in black and white, for me, I don't actually like it because by then... 69, I mean, from 67 onwards. Yeah, there's an, I mean, there's an argument for saying that th- shows like Ready, Steady, Go and Shindig and stuff absolutely suit black and white because of the things that the bands are wearing, yeah. things that the audience mm-hmm. are wearing. But by now, pop's really colourful, you know? And, and this yes. feels like a last gasp for black and white. But to be honest, it annoys me that all performances on top of the pops after sort of 67 weren't in colour. Um, I don't see a benefit. I want to see the colours and the palette of people and the pop stars and what they're wearing. Um, but black and white has that little little hold over you with this episode. Well, d- didn't the BBC spend a load of money on recolouring an episode of Top of the Pops from this era? Oh, really? Wouldn't that and then, wouldn't that yeah. look like a Laurel and Hardy thing or something? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I've seen I've seen a clip of it. It looks really good. Uh, problem was a certain presenter on it. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yes. But I mean, but, but that's the thing. Because so, of the black and white, you. St- I mean, don't forget, we're only two years after the dropping of things like the Disc Girl on top of the pops. You know, yes. so it still has those traces from those days, which are amplified by the black and white. But at the same time, you can imagine this show in colour. 
the way the bands are laid out and the way the camera yeah. moves. Well, it was, it was, it was done in colour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we've only got, we've only got this. Yeah, yeah. As the intro kicks in, we are assailed by close-up fast cuts of musical instruments being hit or pushed or blown into in extreme close-up, interspersed with groovy neon numbers counting down from twenty to one, and then shots of a record being pressed, finishing with the show logo as an RP voice proclaims, "Yes, it's number one. It's top of the pops." Um, this is the the first time we've come across this theme and opening credits, isn't it, chaps? Very 1965, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Already feels dated. Yeah, just as the changes in popular culture and society have yet to percolate through to commercial pop. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the changes in graphic design technology <laughs> have yet to percolate through to Top of the mm. Pops also. Yeah. Uh, and also, I hate the old Top of the Pops where it says it's number one, it's Top of the Pops. because. Yeah. I had that Kinks album with the song Top of the Pops on it right. for years before I ever saw this. And they do a, a well, it's not even a piss take, they just say it mm. at the start of that. They go, it's number one, it's Top of the Pops. Mm. So I can't hear it without expecting to hear Dave Davis's guitar clanging in immediately. So just, it throws me off. Um, it's almost like a wrong nostalgic idea of what yes, uh, yeah. swinging TV would have been like yeah. in yes. the 60s. And they've got the date a bit wrong and, yes. you know, sort of got the period detail a bit wrong. Yeah, but when no, they do documentaries that, about the Beatles and he's shown you John Lennon's wedding yeah. and they've got that stock music playing over it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. But, it, yeah, so it's, but no, this is, that actually was it. That's the terrible truth. Yeah. But even in contrast to the 1970 episode that me and Taylor did, uh, mm. this show's got a long way to go before it before it hits its kind of stylistic high points uh, in a few yeah. years. It's still got a long way to go, and it's not even as developed as that 1970 show was. We're pitched disconcertingly into a wide shot of the studio and the kids failing to dance properly to this week's number one. <laughs> Fucking hell. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Yeah. Shocking. How, how could you dance to that anyway? Then we have the top 20 rundown that's thrown at us from the big screen at the back of the studio. And Taylor, it's another chance to see the contents of Jeffrey Dahmer's fridge, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. This time on a white background, which makes him stand out a little bit more. It's true. It's weird, though. It's a, it's a pretty good chart until you yeah. get to the top 10, which is all yes. middle-of-the-road solo singers. Yes. Uh, really peculiar makeup of the charts at the time. And, and yeah. strange uh, rundown photos in as much as... You, you know that ageing app everyone was using to age yes. their face? It, it's like... It, it's this a racist ageing app that's been applied here because it, it seems that only the white stars look absolutely... Some of them look... Like Sandy Shaw doesn't look like that in 1969, surely. Um, no. Whereas Marvin Gaye looks smooth as a eel and beautiful. Um, mm. So, yeah, there's not there's not disparity there. Unbelievably, as recently as a year ago, they were actually doing this, but counting up. So it would go from number one to number 20. That's just, that's perverse. I mean, we were talking about it in the 81 episode, that changing the rundown from being at the beginning to being during the show built the tension, built everything. Any possible tension is dissipated in the first 20 seconds of this show as to the actual contents of the charts and what, you know. So that definitely needed a major rethink. It culminates in a massive number one next to the head of Peter Sarstedt. There's a pan back and a sweep across the kids who were still trying to dance to a waltz time melody by listlessly swaying about and in one case jogging on the spot. And we're finally introduced to the host, 
Alan Freeman. Born in Melbourne in 1927, Alan Freeman abandoned his childhood dream of becoming an opera singer and worked as an assistant paymaster for a timber company after leaving school. In 1952, he auditioned as an announcer for the Tasmanian radio station 7LA and got a job as a continuity announcer, newsreader, voiceover artist for assorted adverts, quizmaster and DJ. After moving back to his birthplace to work for 3KZ Melbourne, he took a nine-month break to travel around the world. But when he arrived in London, he decided to stay on this side of the equator. In 1958, he started working as a fill-in DJ at Radio Luxembourg, picking up the nickname Fluff in tribute to the manky jumper he practically lived in at the time. In 1960, he was poached by the BBC and worked on the Light programme as the presenter of Records Around Five, which saw the introduction of his theme tune at the sign of the swinging cymbal. A year later, he took over from David Jacobs as the host of Pick of the Pops, the original BBC radio chart show, which at the time was a segment in the jazz show Trad Tavern. But a year later, it was spun off into its own two-hour show. However, Freeman's non-BBC accent and full-on delivery grated with a sizable chunk of the listenership, and in 1962, he was replaced by Jacobs for two years. After recording a flop cover version of Madison Time, Freeman moved into television, presenting the quiz show Play Your Hunch for the BBC, the pop shows Spin Along and Thank Your Lucky Stars for ITV, and the interview show Here Come the Girls, also for ITV. In 1964, Freeman restored his grip on the charts as he returned to the presenting chair at Pick of the Pops and became one quarter of the rotating cast of presenters for the new BBC One show, Top of the Pops, along with David Jacobs, Pete Murray and Jimmy Savile. Not only that, but he became a regular panellist on Jukebox Jury and the face of Omo. <laughs> for the rest of the 60s, Freeman divided his time between working for Luxembourg on weekdays and the BBC on Sundays and was one of the original 29 DJs at the launch of Radio 1. Coming back in 1968 to present All Systems Freeman, a Friday evening prototype pop video show where Freeman operated a complicated control panel like Ali Bongo to bring up clips of Herman's Hermits, which was scrapped (laughs) by the BBC halfway through its run due to low viewing figures. At this point, he's holding down the midnight slot at Radio Luxembourg between Paul Burnett and Kid Jensen and still presenting Pick of the Pops, and he's very much a regular fixture on top of the Pops. He's also earning over twice as much as the Prime Minister. Not off. (laughs) etc etc it's fair to say chaps at this point Alan Freeman's pretty much up there with Savile as the most prominent DJ in Great Britain don't you think yeah Yeah. but but so so much more likeable oh hell Um, yeah you know um, uh, the the odd thing was anyone who's obviously got a 50 year radio career we we all come to him at different times in in our lives I guess you know so we've all got different memories for me um, when Pick of the Pops became a retro show, you know, picking a couple of years of the charts, um, he was fantastic on that when he when he when he did that show and the way he talked about pop, he has that thing that a lot of that original rotating team uh, of Top of the Pops had that that sort of 
insane dizzying knowledge of the charts a bit, yes. a bit like tony blackley you know he knows the movers and the uppers and the downers and, and and you can't really tell if his links are scripted or just what he would have done on the radio yeah um there's sin- there's still that sense here that essentially what you're getting is a radio show televised but for me personally my experience with with fluff is is when he took over the rock show the friday night rock show from tommy mm. vance and also the saturday rock show as well um the way he presented that it was just he was great, and, and he'd just play these 13-minute prog songs and really enjoy himself. Um, I mean, just his intros were, to those shows were nuts because he'd cut up classical stuff and sound effects and ACDC and, and all this stuff um, because, essentially, he understood his audience. The crucial thing about metal fans at any given period um, even though metal is quite a derided musical form, um, mm. metal fans balance that by being colossally snobbish about their yes. own musical taste. You know, um, <laughs> to, you know, it's that old to play an instrument that fast um, thing. <laughs> of the, you know, actually, this music is that's cold throat. <laughs> that actually, metal is you know perhaps the closest music to classical in a sense in a lot of metal music fans' heads. So the yeah. way he used to speak to the audience was, was fantastic. That, that that way he used to start the show with Greek music lovers as opposed to you know pop pickers and he fostered that sense of metal community with those shows i was listening to one the other day and he he starts it off he goes um we who once were two hours are now forever more three hours long (laughs) (laughs) you know hallelujah suddenly comes on so so crucially whenever he was on for me pick of the pops or anything he's just likable really likable self-deprecatory assured and reassuring and, and mm. you know, I think it's probably easy to forget what a pioneer he was. I, I suspect other people were perhaps trying the same thing. But, you know, th- think about all the DJs that came in his wake who basically totally copped his style and had a little bit yeah. of his style in there. Perhaps the first DJ on British radio, perhaps, to do things like talk over intros, you know, and put one record next mm. to each other. Um, the granddaddy of them all, both good and bad, but I've always got on with Fluff. I've always really enjoyed hearing him on the radio. Yeah, well, he's one of those people who is almost a victim of their own innovation because they mm, create yes. a distinctive style and it ends up being so influential and so widely parodied that decades yeah. later it looks a bit silly, but that's not their doing. And he, mm. no, he's the real thing. And he's very stiff, like here, he's very stiff and he's very uh, stagey. And it's obviously enormously dated in his style, but he's so much more natural and likable than most of his successors. And you do believe in him as a bloke who's there to convey information and mild enthusiasm, like controlled <laughs> enthusiasm. Yeah. Like he's a man doing a job which might not be terribly important, but it's harder than it looks and yeah. certainly hard to do without coming across as a cunt, which in fairness, he doesn't. Um, mm. And he's, you know, he's got the radio voice, which he thinks you need. Nice. And, you know, there's something a bit phony about him, but it doesn't matter because he's not selling himself as a as a loony or a hero yeah, or yeah, a pinup yeah. or a super personality. He's just a self created cardboard cutout that handles the transition between acts. And because he actually likes music, there's a sort of sincerity underneath it which mm. you can pick up on. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you mm. look at him; he's not yet into that later phase where they'd wheel him out in a bath chair. You know, with a <laughs> yeah, yeah, blanket yeah. over his knees. He's he's cool. He's got his middle aged roll neck and yes. he's got his dark hair parted yeah. above the temple. He looks yes. like Carl Sagan, except yes, <laughs> except <laughs> instead of beaming 
come and get me please into interstellar space he just he introduces zager and evans or love sculpture uh and goes home for his tea you know yeah just before he went off to do 16 takes of him patting a pile of brentford nylons negligees (laughs) and (laughs) thus collecting a static charge big enough to power finland through the winter (laughs) so he needs that's why he had six cans of cossack sprayed on that comb over for the rest of his life it's from the it's from the nylons if it hadn't been for that he'd have had hair like ziggy stardust (laughs) he'd go shake his hand it looked like the opening titles of the south bank show (laughs) <laughs> that, that's the thing with the, with the Brentford and Ireland side of it. It's all it makes you think of is the colossal discomfort you would have. Yeah. Should you, you know, you know, it's all like a, 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 a panoply of, of, of polycotton sheets that you know are just going to pull the fucking hairs out of your legs. Yes, um, but I mean, the, the, it, it, uh, he's just a joyous voice to hear. And 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 you know, when that generation were getting the piss ripped out of them massively by things like Smashy and Nicey, yeah, um, you'd still get him popping up for two seconds on the young ones, you know, and, and, yeah. and it, the only one probably likely to be asked to do any of that stuff. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it was always, it, it, Taylor said, because he was really, he was a real music fan. That's what's great about listening to the old rock show. Because if it was just like big, big names, um, that'd be one thing. But what's glorious about listening to it, especially the intros of the old rock show, he'll be saying like Metallica, um, you know, and, and Kiss and these big bands. And then he'll say, and Dumpy's Rusty Nuts. <laughs> you know, which for any old Melody Maker reader obviously has uh, resonances. But um, yeah, he was fair-minded in his rock show. And, and, and yeah. for metal fans, you know, with not a lot of rock on the radio, obviously, apart from Tommy Vance and, and Alan Freeman, his show was a joy, it really was. And there is something really cool about the fact that he just liked pop music until he was about 50 and then yeah, suddenly yeah. got into metal. <laughs> Yes, yeah, really yeah. good. It's like the only other person I can think of who did that was John Pertwee, uh, <laughs> what? who had no interest in popular music until yeah. he was about fifty, and he got into Led Zeppelin. Oh, excellent! When you're alone in your bed, and a welcome to this week's top DJ, Alan Freeman. <laughs> Another sparkling edition of Top of the Pops. Yes, the same number one. Amen Corner, a bit unlucky. The second week at number two. I want to think make it next week. Anyway, let me tell you that uh, Diary Ross, The Supremes, and The Temptations, they've left number three, taken a nosedive right down to number eight. Donald Pierce creeps in at number three. We have uh, Scylla Black and Sandy Shaw and Marvin Gaye making very determined bids this week in the top ten, and it could be very interesting. But anyway, on this very Thursday night in Top of the Pops, let's get underway with our new release spot. As a matter of fact, they've, uh, they've been on the scene quite a time, and they've had some... Many tremendous hits, I might add, as a matter of fact, Bob Pickers. This one, I think, is going to follow up the other ones. It's going to be sensational. Don Juan, Top of the Pops, Dave Dozy, Beaky Mick, and Titch. In a dark jacket with a light roll neck, possibly mustard, welcomes us and immediately reels off chart information before launching into the new release spot and dropping the term pop pickers not once but twice as he introduces Don Juan by Dave D. Dozer, Beaker, Mick and Titch. 
Formed in Salisbury in 1961 as Dave D and the Bostons, Dave D, Ken, Kenny, Ken and Ken were a band led by a policeman called David Harmon, who was at the scene of the car crash that took the life of Eddie Cochran and salvaged, stroked, nicked Cochran's Gretsch guitar and had a bit of a strum on it at the station before it was returned to his family in America. After packing in the day jobs and taking the Hamburg route, they were discovered in 1964 at Clacton Bucklins by the songwriters Ken Howard and Alan Blakeley, who had written Have I the Right for the Honeycombs, who they were supporting that night. Howard and Blakely immediately signed them up, changed their name and booked them a recording session with Joe Meek. But he made them play at half speed and lobbed coffee at them in a fit when it wasn't working out. Although their debut single, No Time, got them on Ready Steady Go, it failed to chart, as did the follow-up, All I Want. But the third single, You Make It Move, put them over the top, getting them to number 26 in February of 1966. The next single, Hold Tight, got to number four for two weeks in April of 1966, kicking off a run of ten chart hits on the bounce, which peaked in March of 1968 when Legend of Xanadu knocked Cinderella Rockefeller off number one and stayed there for one week until it was usurped by Lady Madonna by the Beatles. This is the follow-up to The Wreck of the Antoinette, which got to number 14 in November of 1968, and it's a new entry this week at, if the official chart website isn't fucked, Joint 49th with Fox on the Run by <laughs> Manfred Mann. Ties in the charts, that's, that's insane. Because also in this week, uh, White Room by Cream, Going Up the Country by Candide and You're My Everything by Max Bygraves are all tied at joint 46. Which only highlights the uh, lack of precision in the information gathering. Uh, yes. Because, of course, obviously they didn't mm. sell precisely the same number of records. No, or, or there's a lot of Max Bygraves um, satin mm. tour jackets being preferred yeah. at record shops. So this, this is shit, shit, shitty, shit and shit, isn't it? Oh, God. I mean, first things first, nobody likes bands with a copper in them, right? Mm. And you you don't have to be some sort of nutty anarchist or, you know, obsessively anti-police to feel uncomfortable with it because you just know deep down that, like, Making Time by the Creation or Black Steel in the Hour of Chaos or Holidays in the Sun... None of these records could have been made by policemen, right? It's just a fundamental thing. No human being can move that far in one direction Mm. and then cut back so far in the other direction. It's just not possible. Uh, But in this case, they used it uh, as a selling point um, Mm. because, you know, in, in the course of his duty when he called to the scene of eddie cochran's fatal car crash and it's like supposed to be a rock and roll claim to fame as if like you know his spirit might have risen from the wreckage and passed in the pc dipshit you know and it, it obviously didn't um and it backfires because at the end of the day you can't loosen up the way rock and roll compels you to with mm. policemen in the room, like, <laughs> even if you're not doing anything illegal. It's just an obstacle. It's like if the lead singer was the CEO of an outsourcing company mm. or, a, or a former rector, you know. It's not right. It's like, excuse me, sir, I, I have reason to believe you can shake your ass <laughs> till the morning light. 
<laughs> proceeding down Lonely Street towards Heartbreak Hotel, saw the accused crying in the gloom. And uh, <laughs> when asked if he had ever been to Electric Ladyland, the suspect became very aggressive and assaulted myself and PCL Getty while hurling himself around the cell, sustaining injuries to his cheekbone and spleen. Yeah, I hate it. I can't stand fucking Dave D. Creepy twat and cunt. I can't stand them. I don't like them. No. Even when they're quite good, right, which they were at times. Yes. Hold Tight is a great record in the way that the Dave Clark Five tried to be and failed, right? It's just really brutal and moronic uh, with no pretensions to being music at all, you know. Uh, And Bendit is great as well because it's Mm, so shameless. No, I hate Bendit. Well, it's so British and unsexy and and these kind of terrible innuendos. You know, I just, I like it for that. It's got that sort of nylon nighty feel to it. Banned in America, wasn't it? It was for for the innuendo reasons. You have to ask though, really, why would a band uh, sound like this in 1969. This could have come out in, exactly. This could have come out in 63, 64. Yes. I mean, I kind of liked yeah. the the matador theme, as it enabled me to fantasise mm. about a kind of misguidedly literalist BBC floor manager actually getting a raging Pamplona bull onto the stage, and them all getting that would have been brilliant. Yeah, and them all getting gored up the gusset one by one. But the, I mean, yes. the, the trouble with that would be great. The trouble with DDBMT, as I believe the cool kids call them. There's, there's, there's three. There's actually three records I can't resist by them, which is a bit annoying. Bend it actually purely for innuendo reasons. Um, Zabadak for, for reasons. Oh. No, I know it's awful, but for reasons of child rearing and its usefulness as a tranquilizer um, in my in my in my in my parental past. And I love Legend. Right. I, I can't resist Legend of Xanadu because because yeah. of those whip noises. It always yes. reminds me preemptively of this town ain't big enough for the both of us, actually. That moment in that where it all goes off and there's all lightning strikes and stuff. But this one, Jesus. Yeah. It's not helped by the look of them. Um, as, uh, oh, no. I mean, the singer, he's got a massive head covered in face, hasn't he? As I've said before about yes. somebody. But yes, the has, drummer, yes. oof. He keeps going, giving slightly mad Randy looks to the camera. Yeah, that's Mick, isn't it? Yeah, it's like being. I've tried to work out who does what. It's like being cornered by some sort of Victorian pervert, or it's, it's like <laughs> they look like the shop window of John Collier, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> you can just you can just see them spending the Saturdays in the director's box at Chelsea in matching white fur coats. Mm. Strangely featureless faces on the rest of them. That bit when the guitarist yeah. attempts a bit of humour with the castanets as well. Oh, they, yeah, that's Dozer. Yeah, do- well, I mean, let's 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 rewind a little bit Sorry. because I mean, the song Don Juan's about a, a, a bullfighter, mm-hmm. uh, so it's a it's a big celebration of um, animal abuse, yeah. <laughs> right from yeah. the off. Yeah, it's a throwback to when TV themes and things like Hernando's Hideaway could get in the charts. So this is like a well, I mean, the, the, this Matador shit was quite, you know, it was seen as quite chic in the sixties, wasn't it? Yeah, but it's laughable. It's like Carry On Abroad. It's like <laughs> yes, they're just it's, the best of the Carry Ons. <laughs> it is, yeah. yeah it is. They're, but they're trying to cash in on this fascination for Franco's Spain amongst yes. British proles at the time, right? It's like yes. if you, you can't afford a package holiday, buy this single and you feel yes. like you're coming back through the airport with a toy donkey and a. Some grog in a bulb-shaped bottle covered in a fishing net, you know, <laughs> with his shoulders peeling off. And also, it's like he's trying to pull the same trick on English women that actual Spaniards did at the time, which is mm. thinking that 
English women are so used to being treated like overcooked root vegetables that all you have to do is bullshit them with a bit of Olay. Mm. And uh, yes. yeah, you've just you've got yourself a handful of creamy, untoned English goose flesh, you know. <laughs> I fucking dirty Dave D. Mm. I hate him. Yeah. And I hate Dozy and yeah. Beaky uh, and to a lesser extent Mickey. <laughs> It's not, but I, I don't. It's his fucking ridiculous hired bullfighter outfit with his yes. his imaginary cojones. He's obviously making a come and get me plea for Leggy Mountbatten, isn't he? Yeah, for his solo career. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. It's like as if he'd ever have the nerve to get in the ring with one of those bastards. You know what I mean? Can <laughs> yeah. you imagine it? So, yeah, he does. If only. As Neil saying, they need an actual bull. Yeah. To come charging up, horn, yeah. a horn through the bladder. That would make <laughs> yeah. him go, hey. Because I, I, yes. I hate that constant, hey, yes. through this song. Normally, yes. yeah. it'll improve any record if the whole band yes. shouts hey at regular intervals. But no, it no. makes you wretch. They're no glitter band, you've got to say. No. And also, God, the, certainly a not. thing that's common, actually, with a few of the records in this week's uh, Top of the Pops, it goes on for too fucking long. Yes, it fucking it does. It really does. It, it, and you, 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 it, you can sense the audience hoping that it's over. And yet they do <laughs> yeah. another bloody Olay and another Hey Don Juan shout. Particularly listless shouting, really. Yeah, which is a horrible record. Uh, yes, it is. And, it's, and it's, just uh, when you think it can't get any worse, we get yeah. the, uh, the Wiltshire talkover. In the yes. middle, yeah. not the ideal accent for spoken <laughs> sincerity. Well, he like looks no. deep into the camera and mm. he goes, "Lord, my, my whole life has been like a raging torrent." Was <laughs> 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 proceeding down Acacia Avenue when I noticed a raging torrent. I mean, I'm from the West Midlands, right? So I'm in no position to laugh at people's accents, and yet, just as uh, I felt entitled to laugh at Nick Kershaw from the lofty height of five foot seven for him being so short <laughs> in the same way I feel able to laugh at Dave Dirt and his his bull murdering farmer's voice also he's got a yokel copper face right it's simultaneously he looks really thick and really arrogant and pompous mm. which mm. is the nightmare combination in a policeman and Alan Shearer. But it's, <laughs> it's horrible to see because rural cops with nothing to do are always scarier than city cops mm. because they yeah. have to make their own fun, right? Mm. And you can just see him in a panda car just slowing down next to a bunch of kids, you know, with the nerve to be out on the street at 11.50. I've been to a party, lads. It's like where I, when I used to live in the sticks when I was a teenager, I swear... 95% of arrests were for possession of a 16th of squidgy black or for <laughs> throwing an empty beer can onto a bowling green. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, and, except for that time except for that time someone made a, a citizen's arrest on me. Have I ever told you about this? No. no. Yeah, we were really bored. We'd, we were drunk and there was a disused factory that had just been standing empty for years. Uh and we were throwing rocks through the windows, you know, as kids do. And this oh, bloke, kicks. yeah, and this bloke came out of nowhere, um, and everybody else ran away. And I thought, no, I'm not going to run away. It, <laughs> it looks too suspicious. So I just sort of walked along, minding my. This bloke came and grabbed my arm and goes, "Right, I'm making a citizen's arrest." <laughs> and it was hilarious. I thought I'm going to go along with this to see where it goes. So went back to his house. 
and he knocked on the door and I'm not joking his wife answered the door in like a, a sort of fluffy pink dressing gown and short <laughs> nighty and slippers with all her makeup on as though she was uh, entertaining a gentleman caller while yeah. he was out doing his own looking a little bit oh, I know. yeah I'm making a citizen's arrest call the police so the police came along, and while I was waiting for them to turn up, I looked down at my hands, and I had sort of bits of soil on them off the off the rocks, so I brushed them off on my trousers. And eventually the police turned up, and mm. you could see that they were delighted to be called out on a Friday night for a bloke <laughs> saying, I've made a citizen's arrest. He was throwing a rock at a deserted building. Okay. So they, they took me into the back of the police car, and the bloke came out, got his torch out, and he said, hold your hands out put my hands out, shone his torch onto the palms of my hand. They talked to each other, and they came back and said, all right, you can go. We decided that if you'd been throwing rocks, you'd have dirt on your hands. Uh, there you go, uh, you see. Well done, Taylor. I fought the law, and I won. Yes. <laughs> but I'd deal with them over Dave D any day of the week because there's something disturbing, ultimately, about a copper trying to be glamorous or sexy or pose as good-looking because it automatically has that faint whiff of fascism. Do you know what I mean? Mm. It's like, if you, you know, when you watch a crime film or a police procedural, you know mm. what the agenda is going to be by who's the best looking, like the villains or the cops. Mm. Like if the villains are better looking than mm. the cops, mm. it, it could, you know, it could be anything. But if the cops are good looking and cool, you know you're going to be in for some heavy authoritarian propaganda. <laughs> Which can be fine. I just watched the film Live Like a Cop, Die Like a Man, directed by uh, mm. Ruggiero Cannibal Holocaust Diodato, which is a buddy-buddy, pretty-boy, thug-cop movie, <laughs> right? Which is like, it's like a proto-professionals. It makes professionals look like Juliet Bravo. But, <laughs> it, and it's one of the most entertaining films I've ever seen, but you wouldn't buy an album by those guys, mm. right? Same as you wouldn't buy an album by Dave D. Dozy bell end piss and shit. You know, it's, just, it's not the lyrical no. content of the song. He's he's Don Juan, uh, and he spends all his time killing bulls and, and <laughs> getting his leg over. Yeah, but there's one special girl that's captured his heart, and he's looking round for her uh, as he fights the biggest yeah. bull ever, and she's with someone else, and so he decides he he decides to basically let the bull <laughs> gore him to death. Hurrah! <laughs> and that's pretty much it, isn't it? Well, yeah, but it, uh, just one last thing. It does need saying that the, the story that he kind of sold mm. himself on that's been mentioned several times about him using Eddie Cochran's guitar, that, why was that considered a good thing to do? I think that's grisly. It's almost theft. It's, it's yeah, it's it's a copper's move, isn't it? So, the following week, Don Juan soared 18 places to number 31, and a week later, it got to number 23, its highest position. The follow-up, Snake in the Grass, also got to number 23 in June of this year, but three months later, Dave D announced that he was leaving the band to pursue an acting career, which resulted in a part as a motorbike gang leader called Wednesday Playstar in the Marty Feldman sex comedy, Every Home Should Have One. The band continued on under the name DBM&T until 1972 without having anything to do with the charts whatsoever, while D started a solo career and got to number 42 in March of 1970 with My Woman's Man. 
But due to it coming out at the same time as Fontana Records moving its distribution plant, it was impossible to find in record shops until it was too late. (laughs) And after giving up both singing and acting, Dee moved into A&R for Atlantic, Magnet and WEA, having a hand in the signings of ACDC, Boney M, Gary Newman and B.A. Cunterson. (laughs) Indeed. But before we step away from... uh, Mr. D, uh, I'm going to run a finger once more along the chart music bookshelf and I'm pulling out the 1970 Fab 208 annual. There's a very poor crop of people on the cover. It says a feast of dishy people, but I'm looking at Tony Blackburn, <laughs> Morris Gibb, uh, Davy Jones <laughs> and uh, a whole lot of Kennage. But there is an article. An open letter to the females, if you will, written by Dave D. Although the top fashion designers may decree that weird makeup, coloured tights and baggy pants are all the rage, Dave D does not agree. The title, I Love Real Girls. (laughs) From way back when I was a kid, I remember a poem, Little Bits of Powder, Little bits of paint make a lady look like what she ate. It's not from your actual Willie Shakespeare, but it's got a whole stack of basic truth to it. (laughs) Now, I'm not a kid anymore, and I take what you could call a close interest in what a lady is and what she ain't. A girl starts off with a considerable advantage in this world, in that she's cuddly and warm and pretty and shapely. And there are blokes around just wanting to be nice and matey towards them. But I hope with all my heart that next year we'll see our glorious girls concentrate a bit more on what they are, as opposed to what they're not. Girls are essentially feminine. So why the deuce do they insist on trying their best to look like blokes or paint themselves up so that they'd be better suited to the life of a squaw on a Red Indian reservation? Fuck (laughs) Let's dig a little deeper into this problem, which I can assure you is worrying a lot of us members of the opposite, ahem, sex. Every so often, we have outbreaks of girls using weirdo eye makeup. It was terrible some years ago, but we thought it had vanished for all time. Now it's back. Great deep black indentations so that you try to look deep into a girl's eyes and find difficulty in actually locating them. False eyelashes? Fine, as long as they don't wave way out in front like the antenna of some horror movie insect. I guess I'm just a simple soul at heart. Where men have basically short hair, then I reckon girls should have long hair. I have mentioned this before and got some diabolical letters from chicks who simply had hair so fine or something that they couldn't get it down to more than halfway down their shoulders. Well, I've got nothing against short hair, just expressing an opinion that long hair, hanging free and with a wind-blown look, is my personal cuppa. But even short hair can look feminine. What can't look feminine is the close-cropped look the flat on the head sort of thing. If you don't have long hair, then surely don't go the other way and reduce it to half an inch of crowning non-glory all over the head. Trouble is, 
that girls seem to get carried away by massive advertising campaigns. We're black lipstick, say the posters. We're green lipstick. We're, believe it or not, transfers stuck upon the forehead or the cheek. I've seen girls wearing all this stuff and I doubt very much whether they'd even be accepted in one of those wigwam Indian reservations. <laughs> Most blokes don't like plastered on makeup anyway, so you're left with the theory that the girls are actually using it to impress other girls. Which is a pretty funny state of affairs. Oh, fuck off. That's hilarious. Simpleton. It's so bizarre, this late 60s, early 70s thing, where men thought that people wanted to know, like Dave D thought people wanted to know what made him wank into his helmet. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, we all have, have tastes. Who cares? Like, yeah. you know, it, like, you can, Taylor, you can sort of understand those sort of articles in Cosmo and stuff that were like what George Best is looking for in a, in a, in a lady or what T-Rex is looking oh, for sure. in a lady. But who gives a fuck what this... I know, cunt, but also yeah. it's because, because of his kind of naturally authoritarian nature, he's not talking about yeah. what does it for him. He's talking about what he thinks girls should look like, which is mm. a subtly mm. different thing. Yeah. That that's his opinion on hair and makeup. Let's let's hear about clothes, shall we? Let's uh, let's be mansplained to by Dave, <laughs> shall we? In the year ahead, we're threatened again with long skirts and trousers for the chicks. In fact, there's already too much of it about. We will wear the trousers, thank you very much. <laughs> Please, girls, don't start hiding the old Scotch eggs. Oh, alias what? legs. Oh god. <laughs> Just because some money grabbing designer says you should. You ask us. We'll put you right. Oh for fuck's sake. Ah, but trouser suits are warmer than mini skirts. That's one thing I've heard. Alas and a lack. Wear mini or micro skirts and you'll never be short of a fella to keep the cold out. Wear trousers and cropped hair, and you can't blame the lads if they accept you simply as one of themselves. <laughs> These dual-purpose clothing outfits scare the pants off me, if you pardon the expression. Boys and girls wearing identical gear? Ugh! Let's forget about looking for startling new fashions and styles through 1970. Let's instead get back to the natural, feminine look. I believe that every girl has something that is naturally attractive and it's up to her to decide what it is and then accentuate it, but not by piling on the war paint and hiding her natural shape in sack-like clobber that leaves everything, but everything, to the imagination. Yeah, I can see how that would be a problem for Dave D, yeah. not possessing an imagination. <laughs> yes. There is just one problem. Tights. Apparently, you have to wear tights if you wear those adorable mini skirts, but we lads are not in favour, especially the ones that are like a technical nightmare and in thick, old maidish material. Can't somebody dream up the equivalent of the old nylons adopted to suit mini skirts? In bold, if the human race is capable of putting men on the moon, then surely we can come up with something. To go under a mini skirt. So, as we look ahead, the plea is this: just be natural, girls. 
Just be your own charming sweet selves. Don't hide yourself away under layers of what the so-called experts say is high fashion or wangadang makeup. You'll certainly oblige yours truly, Dave D. Oh, that, he went a bit gove there, didn't he, at the end? Well, he, he's got that fucking thing of, of telling women what they should be wearing whilst also sort of tightening it up as kind of actually he's liberating them in some way, back to their true yes. feminine selves. Yeah, don't listen to all these blokes telling you what you should wear. Listen to me <laughs> telling you. Yes. I mean, you know, as the parent of my eldest daughter is very much into a fake tan and hair extensions. And, and if I really, if I wanted to really fucking wind her up, I know exactly what to say. Don't wear makeup. You look so beautiful without it. You look so natural. If you yeah. fucking say that to a woman, you, you, you're right to get a jab in the bollocks for that. I mean, you know, that, that and, mm. and oh man, that is an infuriating arc. I hate him even more now. Cheers, Al. That's provided much justification for my loathing of this record. Quite predictable. I mean, the only surprise is that he didn't end that article with uh, evening all. Uh, new release for the week, John Wan from Dave D. Dozy Beaky Nick and Titch. Oh, incidentally, pop because we've had lots of letters uh, say that we never have American artists on top of the pops, whether in the charts. Well, you know, it's often pretty difficult because when their records break in America and start to break over here too, they're usually pretty busy working in America. But we're delighted to say we've got somebody over in top of the pops tonight. Uh, he's been uh, in the top 20 very recently and is still there at number 20 with For Once in My Life. He's got a brand new one called I Don't Know Why. Top of the Pops is delighted to say good evening to Mr. Stevie Wonder. <laughs> about getting letters from the pop craze youngsters who aren't getting enough American artists and putting on dick fucking Emery instead. He points out that American artists are in America, but one of them is here right now in little old England, Stevie Wonder with I Don't Know Why. Born Steveland Judkins in Saginaw, Michigan in 1950, Stevie Wonder is Stevie fucking Wonder. This single, his 20th release in the UK, is the follow-up to For Once In My Life, which got to number three for three weeks in February of this year. It's the fourth cut from the LP For Once In My Life, which was released in December of 1968 and was put out in America two months ago. It's not out here just yet, but as Stevie's in the country and about to embark on a UK tour that will take in three London dates, Slough, Coventry, Birmingham, Wolverhampton and Cardiff to name but a few, but no fucking East Midlands gigs I notice. Here he is, perched at the Clavinet. Fucking hell, imagine seeing such mintness and skillness in Wolverhampton. It's not fair. I've already mentioned this in uh, in the question and answer um, podcast that me, you, and Sarah did, Neil, mm. um, where we, you know, we were asked for the what, they, what we thought were the greatest top of the pops performances ever. I chucked this in, and having reviewed it, I'm uh, I'm not backing down from it. This is 
fucking amazing. It's great. Great song. And and yes. great grungy sound on the on that Honor clavinet. Um, mm. which immediately plugs you into that just that funky ass late 60s early 70s sound plugs you into it's like Miles Davis or something do you know what I mean it's, mm. it's that kind of sound and Stevie yeah. Stevie at this point is in the late stages of his kind of first contract with Motown his childlike yes. contract if you like so he'd continue really be to be making albums up until really Music on My Mind in, in 71 or 72, uh, making albums that were a mix of covers and, and, and standards and his own songs like this. It, it's, yeah. it's so weird to think he's only 18 here. But the, te- the tensions regarding his contract, you can tell are kind of, in a sense, already there. He can he gets to void that contract as an adult and then he gets to exert more control. Um, mm. And that leads to the run of amazing LPs in in, in in the seventies, but this is still a great, great record, and I can't tell what's going on here in terms of yeah. is this the original being played through really fucked up speakers, or is this the Top of the Pops orchestra doing? No, I have no. to say, a fantastic version. Um, it, it, it's not. It's not the original version. No, it's, and it is being sung live. It's it's heavy as fuck, um, and it's dr- beautiful, isn't yeah, it? The it's drums, amazing. The drums are bigger. The strings are bigger. It's 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 a really really great. Um, Great performance, this. The, I know it seems like a little thing, but the moment he stands up, it just lifts. It just absolutely takes off, and, and he really starts belting it out. Um, you know, the guy at this point, he's a musical bomb kind of waiting to go off. Pretty soon, he's going to be mm. making records as important in the development of electronic music as, as Can and Kraftwerk. For now, he's just kind of waiting for that. But, mm. but it does remind me that kind of, you know, we're talking the, the year of supergroups in a way, things like Blind Faith and stuff like that. Yeah. I wish more black collaboration had been encouraged from mm. that period. You mentioned mm. that Jimmy wanted Miles playing at his funeral. Yeah. I wish somebody had got Stevie and Sly and Jimmy and Miles just together. Just put them in a room, just dangle a mic, I don't know, get it down there. But but by some distance, and no spoiler alerts or anything, but this is the most fantastic thing on this show. It's absolutely oh, yeah. fantastic. Yeah, I mean the late sixties period of Stevie Wonder tends to be overlooked, but it I, does. I, I can't lie. This is my favourite period of Stevie Wonder. I think right. not to do the early or the or the mid seventies stuff down because I love that too. But I just love this more. Funk Brothers on absolutely peak form as well on this record. But the, the, yes. you know this version in a sense yeah. is more aggressive than the original. But I really like it yeah. in its own right. It's a really delicious little thing. I think a week before he he, he came to Britain, he was on Hollywood Palace with Diana Ross and the Supremes, and he right. does another version of this song here, uh, uh, on that. Mm. And it sounds different again. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I'd, I would love to know how much input the Top of the Pops Orchestra had. <laughs> but I get the feeling that kind of like the late 60s Top of the Pops Orchestra is going to be a bit better than the, the late <laughs> 70s one. Yeah, their liver's still in better shape. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm weird about Stevie Wonder, right? And I had a bit of a voyage with this clip in the mm. week or two that I've been watching it, I'm very selective. I'm too selective for some reason mm. with his stuff. Like, obviously his best stuff is, you know, up in the stratosphere. Uh, but there's also loads of his music that doesn't really uh, grab me, and I'm mm. not sure why. And then yeah. in the middle is stuff like this, where this was my original uh, impression of this, where I'd hear it and i think, well, this is obviously great, but I mm. sort of admire it more than I'm enjoying it, and I don't mm. know why. Yeah. And it sounds phenomenal coming after Dave D. Dozer. Oh, God, yeah. Fuck up. 
Cuthbert Devil and Grub. But <laughs> but it's this was only a minor hit, and it sort of sounds like it. Um, and I was listening to it, thinking this is good music, but I can't do that much with it. I can't imagine paying for it. It's sort of great in a in a very passive way. And I knew the record, but only vaguely. So it was mm. like a pure experience, just this Top of the Pops clip. Uh, and then the last time I watched it, I was just in the mood. And I was mm-hmm. able to hear all the bits and feel how they fit together. And mm. as soon as that happened, it all came streaming through. And yeah. suddenly I, you know, I was frozen to the spot, by, especially by the singing. Yeah. Uh, yes. And the very natural and remorseless procession of the song and the yeah. steady build. And I could hear it also. Maybe, like Rod Stewart, this record is a grower, not a shower. Um, mm-hmm. But that still means it's a poor choice as a single. Yeah, mm. I mean, it hasn't, it hasn't got a chorus, has it? It's basically, yeah. it rotates the chords over and over and over again. And the voice is the only thing providing drama in a sense in that it lifts certain sections. It had, it is an odd choice as a single. It's a perfect album track, but it, it, mm. it is an odd choice as a single. Yeah. And also like Neil yeah. was saying, the muddiness of the audio on this file is quite weird. Um, mm, and it's yeah. often the case with lushly arranged records or performances uh, crammed into TV's very narrow dynamic range, you know, to the point where the last minute mm. of this, Sounds a bit like the inside of your head when you're drowning, you know. It's like it's like this music has got too big for an old TV or a mm. dance set, and it's yeah. already in the seventies, just waiting, drumming its fingers. Yeah. <laughs> okay, the arrangements extremely Elvis in Vegas, isn't it? Yeah, I guess it is. And it, Tom yeah, Jones, it's big, it's big. just big fucking orchestral punch in the funny. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I wonder if perhaps the, the the problem I was having here is that. Stevie is already an albums act, but such a thing has mm. only just begun to exist. I mean, obviously, he would still come up with loads of great hits, but generally, the musical concerns of a lot of his songs are no longer the concerns of a pop single. And I think this is yeah. one of those. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> uh, it's great music, it's just not topped and tailed in the way you would uh, to make a, a really memorable single, you know? Yeah. Mm. He's still suffering. I mean, he's still got the, the very gaudy constrictions on, on kind of what he can sing about and what he can write about to a certain yeah. extent. And obviously, mm. in 1969, if you're a young black man in America, you're going to want to write about something more than love. Um, yeah. But he's not yet allowed to do that. So he's just on no. the cusp. But my God, he's, he's, he doesn't need to do anything with his voice because his voice is there. Yeah. And, yeah. and he's just purely waiting for the technology to come along to fully flesh out the visions that he has for black pop. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, like you say, Taylor, taken after Dave D, Dozy, Cunt and Twato, it's just a different world. Isn't yeah. it? You just want it to be like Wizard of Oz and suddenly burst into colour yeah. <laughs> after them twats. Like Bagpuss. I mean, yes. you do get this a lot with uh, juxtaposition of particularly, uh, particularly British, British records, followed up by yeah. particularly American soul records. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, you do get that effect. We've seen it quite a lot in the past, but not probably not never quite as dramatically as this. No, yeah, Steve, Stevie no, no, Wonder no. does not have to keep shouting "Hey" to liven this record. <laughs> up. No, no, or, or wave a cape uh, about. I mean, I'm all for gimmicks, yeah. but you know, there's two heart in the mouth moments. Number one, when he's singing live, and you can tell he's singing live because he tries to pull the microphone 
out of a stunt and and hits himself in the teeth with it, <laughs> and you can hear it. Mm. Uh, but he just carries on. Yeah, yeah. And when he gets up and stands in front of the clavinet, I mean, we've seen Billy Preston do it with a, doing a chicken dance in yeah, the 1971 yeah. in front of the clavinet. You know, yeah. wasn't that impressed by it. But but this, it's like, oh, fucking hell, please don't fall off the stage. Please don't, do <laughs> not fall off the stage, Steve. Yeah, but he's standing up, he's standing up to testify and it, and it gives yes. his voice an extra push. It's just fantastic. That yeah, thing. and it's such a, such a small movement. You know, it's all oh, oh, great. Yeah. He stood up, but it just, yeah, the drama <laughs> of it is, uh, you know, vastly greater than anything. That... A little bit more impressive than when Westlife does it. Yeah, <laughs> shall we say? But the greatness of this—I mean, I'm not entirely sure if the the audience are cognizant of what's going oh, on. Oh, they're not. They're fucking ignorant cunts. <laughs> this top of the pops audience is is it's it's very it's very ready steady go, isn't it? The more interested in looking like they're making the scene. Yeah, yeah, the parlance of the day, and they basically spend the time either dancing with each other or rabbiting on and looking at the camera. Yeah, but I mean, I don't mind the rabbiting on and looking at the camera. I quite like that. But but yeah, I sort of think with these late sixties, early seventies top of the popses, I do sort of question where they get these people from. Um, Mm. That you know, a lot of them, you know, especially the girls doing a sort of professional go-go type moves. Yeah, you just wonder whether these are sort of prototype zoo wankers in a sense. Do you know what I mean? Well, exactly. Yes. Them elsewhere. So, yeah, yeah their, their response isn't isn't what this song this song and this performance deserves. It is, it is by miles like the high point of the show. There's also a lot yeah. of what looks like old mods in the audience as well. Uh-huh. Yeah, 1969. Uh-huh. It's like it's not very modernist, is it? You know what I mean? No. <laughs> but in the same way that you see, there's that famous clip of uh, the, what's it called? The 14-hour Technicolor Dream at Ali Pali. Yes. There's all the hippies swanning about in caftans. And there's a bloke there going, I came down here to have a good time and I haven't. And it's like, he's got like a black <laughs> yeah, suit yeah. on and a white shirt and a thin black tie. And it's like, he thinks it's 1962. Uh, that's what these people look like here. You know, it's guys mm. in like wraparound sunglasses with a V-neck. And a, yeah. uh, and it's mm. like, yeah, you, you would have looked great five years ago. But yeah. <laughs> It's like only two years previously, uh, Our World. Have you ever seen that in full? You know, the, the, the yeah. Round the World satellite show with All You Need Is Love yeah, on it. as much as I could take. Yeah, because you, you know everybody forgets about the other British contribution to that, which was a a, a, a kind of a barn dance up in Scotland. But it's not even, and they're waiting for the fucking sixties to begin. Never mind anything yeah. else. Yeah. But but yes, this is fucking mint and skill. Well done, Steve. So three weeks later, I don't know why, entered the chart at number forty-seven, and by the end of April, it got to its highest position, number fourteen. However. When the song started to slide down the chart, Tony Blackburn picked up on the B-side and played it on his Radio 1 Breakfast Show, a song that was recorded in 1967, leading to Motown switching the sides over and putting it out again. And this time, My Sharia Moore spent three weeks at number four in August of this year. They also repeated the trick in America, where it also got to number four in July. And he finished off the 60s by taking Yes to Me, Yes to You, Yesterday to number two in December of this year, held off number one by Sugar Sugar by the Arches. Fucking hell, sitting on my Sharia Moore for two years, man, that's insane. 
as you can see in the charts of 1962, people are not willing to let go of that mid-60s soul. Yeah, there's people even now. Yes. <laughs> yeah, me, me included. Yeah, but the, the thing is, I mean, it, re, when I read sort of contemporary reviews from the late 60s into some of the records that I'm sure all of us here love the most, in a sense. You know, when Isaac Hayes started stretching out and doing 20-minute yeah. songs and stuff like that, what you actually get from an awful lot of the kind of the white mainstream press, in a sense, is that, oh, they've forgotten what they're all about. You know, they've forgotten yeah. that they've forgotten their roots. They've forgotten that, you know, the stack sound, sound should be like this, and it should basically sound yeah. like it's been cr- recorded in a tin shack or something, and all the songs yeah. should be two minutes long. There's a real resistance to black pop stretching itself out in that way. Yes. Um, and this, this sense of, sorry to use a horribly contemporary phrase, but this sense of, of white people curating black music and deciding what it should be doing or how it should be adhering closer to its roots. And I'm guessing Mm. Stevie suffered from a bit of that as well. from America, Stevie will appear much more often in Top of the Pops. Could come back for a big smash hit with that one. Anyway, right now, let's go on to our tip for the top. Oh, before we have our tip for the top, for the Cliff Richard fans, good news, in at number 16 this week with good times. They look like being better times too. Anyway, back to our tip for the top in Top of the Pops tonight. The group we've had here before with many smash hits. As a matter of fact, the uh, song is just a little down tempo this time, but the feel's the same. It's called One Road and it's Top of the Pops with The Love Affair. that Stevie Wonder has another smash with that single and that he'll be back on top of the pops very soon. And nearly five years later, he was with Living for the City. Then he introduces the tip for the top section, but before that, he mentions some good news for Cliff Richard fans. (laughs) Hasn't been arrested yet. And finally, he introduces One Road by The Love Affair. Formed in London in 1966 from an advert in Melody Maker, Love Affair consisted of Ken, 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 Ken (laughs) and Steve Ellis, the lead singer. They were signed to Decca and taken under the wing of the producer Mike Smith, who had worked with Billy Fury on Halfway to Paradise for Decca in 1961, but was best known in the early 60s as the producer of the Beatles' Decca audition and turning them down for Brian Poole and the Tremolos, who he took to number one with Do You Love Me in 1963. Their first single, She Smiled Sweetly, written by Jagger and Richards, flopped in early 1967, but when they switched to CBS, they latched onto an American single by Robert Knight called Everlasting Love. And in the same week that they were arrested and fined £7 each for climbing on the Eros statue in a publicity stunt, it knocked the Ballad of Bonnie and Clyde, another Smith production, off number one in February of 1968, staying there for two weeks before being usurped by the mighty Quinn by Manfred Mann. 
However, when the band appeared on Good Evening, the ITV Saturday Tea Time show hosted by Jonathan King, it came out that Everlasting Love was put together by Gasp Session Musicians, with only Ellis having a hand in the finished product, which landed the band with a teeny bopper tag they couldn't shake off. Although it didn't stop them getting to number five with Rainbow Valley and number six with A Day Without Love in that year. Although the LP, The Everlasting Love Affair, failed to chart in the UK. This is their first release of 1969, the follow-up to A Day Without Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And this week it soared 19 places from number 40 to number 21. Well, here's some, here's some more late 60s chaff for you kids. <laughs> uh. There's a really unnerving opening shot of the bloke on guitar who looks like Bertram Muffet out of Carry On mm. Loving. Yes. Um, and he stares into the camera like he's really nervous and terrified. Then suddenly breaks into an easy smile and a wink. Yes. And it's odd because he's not doing it as a bit. It's a genuine change of expression. Mm-hmm. And it makes his charm seem really false and stagey. <laughs> yes. And it adds to the not quite right feel of everything to do with this clip and this record. Yes. Um, but they can't possibly have thought this was going to follow everlasting love, right? They must have known that they were on the way down because what is this? It's nothing really. And there's something really bleak about seeing a group like this halfway down the pipe because yeah. they've made the deal where without hits, they have no reason to exist. Yes. You know, because they're a band, they're a professional group. And you just think of all that time spent learning the guitar, fingertips bleeding and mm. all those terrible gigs for unappreciative animals, you know, getting ripped off by the promoter and his bent-faced goons and driving back from Gloucester in the sleet, you know, all for a couple of months in the sun that you can't even enjoy because yeah. you're being driven so hard while it lasts. You're always on the, you know, on the ferry t- from Harwich to do TV work in the Benelux countries, you know, <laughs> and having your Telecaster stolen while you're pissing against a wall. And it's like you're sleeping in on an amp in the van with the drummer's feet in your face, you know what I mean? <laughs> and wondering why you're still on a quid a week, and it's just, yeah. oh, yeah, you have a handful of Dexedrine and, and fuck off. You know, they won't even let you into Sibylla's because <laughs> your last record's stiffed at number 38. And they're all so young and yeah. finished before they started. Just a taste of heaven and banished from the Citadel, you know. Because people couldn't handle the fact that 
on their first record. It's not like I think it's them playing on this record. Yes, it's just their first record because they were a new group in the studio. So oh, we'll get session men to do it, and they well, were the second record. To admit it. Second record, I beg your mm. pardon. So it's them playing on this record. It's just yeah. you know they were a new group. They hadn't got used to the studio yet, so they put session men on it. Okay, well, but this is before it was widely known, for instance, that the Wrecking Crew were the real yeah. band on mm. practically every great white American single of the 60s, right? Including stuff like Mr. Tambourine Man. Mm. Um, but, but it was after the decision had been made that every credible group had to be fully self-sufficient or else their immortal soul was compromised, mm. you know. Mm. But it's the love affair. Who gives a fuck who played the bass? Nobody. Yeah, yeah. Nobody cares. Jonathan Jonathan King's a wanker for bringing that up. Um, completely. Um, and Everlasting Love's just an immortal banger. It's a great tune. It's a great record, Everlasting Love. Yeah. Um, there's things to like about the love affair. They look, I think, they look really good. They're photogenic teenage boys. Yeah. And I like the backstory as well about them, you know, the the... Mm. the, the drummer's dad was a handbag magnet wasn't he and he, he let them rehearse in a disused warehouse and sent 200 quid to radio caroline to get get everlasting love of the radio play that perhaps turned it into a hit they are kind mm. of forgotten about now I, I, but everlasting love but very everlasting much love so. you don't forget i mean it's up there i, I kind of it's a sound alike really with young girl and willpower and love goes where rosemary goes it's that kind of that kind of white boy soul thing but and it's a shame that when mm. they went from being soul survivors as they were called um, to becoming Love Affair, uh, there was talk yeah. amongst their management of calling them the Thin Red Line. Um, oh, really? Yeah, with the idea being to have a painted line down the middle of their heads that went down in that went <laughs> down into their suits and trousers, uh, which is quite a radical idea. <laughs> I, I've read an interview where one of the Love Affair said, "Yeah, it was like Clockwork Orange or something," you know, but um, that they, they, they refused Get to do out. that. And they also, I think, they, they Dave D should have done that with a blue line. <laughs> Yeah, we've cut here. Yes. <laughs> I like the fact that they did She Smiles Sweetly, which is a great stone song. And I think they did an early Bowie song as well um, in the same yes. session, Cobbled Streets and Baggy Trousers. Um, and the whole Eros story is good. But fuck me, all of that's good. But this song, it's just dreary as fuck. Nice camera moves through it's the it's crowds. It's but when you've got lyrics like, I don't want you to be confused or demoralised or to be abused, it's not a laugh a minute. It's um, no. it's it's just dreary and yeah, it can't be over soon enough, really. Well, it's it's the drift towards adult orientated rock, mm. isn't it? That's already begun. Yeah, and they're they're one of those bands that I've mentioned before who appeared in the charts to fill the gap left by groups going progressive, yeah, yeah. Right? and album orientated. So. But they seem to have suffered for it far worse than than most. I think because they're so clearly neither wanting nor mm. the other, right? Yeah. Like they're obviously not just you know pretty boys put together to be a pop act. Um, you can tell they got started playing like soul and R and B and stuff. So it's almost like the purists got a whiff of that and. Uh, <laughs> Mixing that with middle-of-the-road strings and stuff, they think, oh, no, that's an insult to the purity of the source, you know. Mm. It's like what Neil was talking about, that terrible sort of lofty white snob approach to black music or to, to, to black styles of music, even when played by white bands. And it goes right back to um, Alan Lomax, you know what I mean, where the appreciation, it, it, 
is more ethnological yeah. than yeah, musical. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, and it has no understanding of the actual attitude of most of those musicians to commercialism and to assimilation of other styles, um, which was always really different from their white champions, mm, mm, you know, because they wanted to make music uh, and they'd be growing up around white musicians, like sort of, you know, on the circuit they were playing and there was a, a lot more crossover than people ever thought. Uh, mm. And they didn't think of themselves as exhibits or carriers of somebody else's flag, yeah. you know. And there's like traces of that go all the way down to Love Affairs. Oh, well, the guy's got a sort of a, an R&B voice, but they're doing this kind of ballad. And it's like, oh, that's, that's you know, you, you, you might as well, might as well go, go out to the cotton fields and spit in everyone's face <laughs> individually. You know what I mean? So they really suffer from being neither one thing nor yeah. the other. Um, if Everlasting Love had been by a solo singer, um, I think there'd have been more room to manoeuvre because if you're a solo singer, you travel light. Yeah. And you can always change. And cabaret gigs don't feel like defeat, mm-hmm. you know, if you have to do that for a few years. But this group are dragging each other around and pushing a 20-piece orchestra in a wheelbarrow, you know. <laughs> there's nowhere they can go. Mm-hmm. Um, they sound like they want to become the faces, but, you know, unfortunately for them, a better group got there first. Mm. And... They lost that split second of opportunity yeah. Yeah. and forevermore were stuck down here. With it's the a shame they weren't encouraged to actually, um, never mind getting the pop hits in a sense. Somebody just recorded them, not not live, but captured something of what they were doing live. Because by all accounts, live, they were kind of white hot James Brown style show almost playing, you know, yeah. on recovers. And it would have been great to have, to have heard that. I mean, speaking of, uh, you know, the mods in the audience and stuff, they, th- th- this band, The Love Affair, they do look very small faces, but without the kind of... I love their suits. I love everything they're wearing, actually. But but yeah. um, they haven't got that kind of gutter-snipe, high cock that Marriott had. Mm. Um, uh, so they look great, um, but this song is, is instantly forgettable. Yeah, I mean, I don't like the attitude that did for The Love Affair, but what I sort of objective a bit is that you listen to stuff from around the same time like uh, Story by Honeybus and it's just the same thing Mm -hmm. as this but it's Mm -hmm. much better and sharper and less sludgy and more interesting and no one gives a shit I mean this isn't even really a good example of this kind of six fifties anthemic pop with strings there was a lot of it about and a lot of it was, was better than this you know so yeah, this just feels like a, an illustration of the sort of the directionlessness of a lot of chart pop at the time. I mean, Steve Ellis is—he um, looks ahead of his time, doesn't he? Here, very much so. Yeah, he, he looks like he looks very Steve Harley, he doesn't does. he? He really, really circa nineteen seventy-five. Well, he's got he's got tight trousers, a low-cut top with a crucifix. Mm. And a white swallowtail dinner jacket. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I don't know about this. It's he looks like he looks like if Roger Daltrey had been rushed on stage before he'd finished changing <laughs> from his day job at the Savoy. <laughs> you know. And but and then you look from the neck up at his face and he looks like a runaway from the Anna Share Theatre School. Yes. Mm. You know what I mean? Like born too soon for scum. And it's <laughs> It, as a pop idol, it's like he's constantly trying to deny what his face 
makes all too clear, which is how ordinary mm. he is. Yeah. Uh, it's just the, the the bits just don't go together, and that's the tragedy of the love affair. Yeah, I mean the other tragedy is that they were being pushed hard as um, as dishy hunks. Uh, yeah. In the Fab 208 annual here, there's a two-page spread. Wanted, dead or alive, the Love Affair gang. So they've got posters. And uh, Steve Ellis, accused of making people happy. (laughs) Mick Jackson, accused of dazzling people with his clothes. (laughs) Rex Brayler, the bloke who does the nervous winky thing at the beginning, is accused of stealing young girls' hearts. Mo Bacon is accused of turning girls head over heels. Wait a minute, Mo Bacon? Mo Bacon. Maurice Mo Bacon, yeah. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And Morgan Fisher is accused of arson. No, he's not. He's playing with girls' emotions. Dubious, though, much of that copy is. At least none of it contains the word iconic. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I tell you what, I've got a, another old copy of Melody Maker here where Steve Ellis reviews the single. Oh, does he now? Yeah, it's this is a copy of Melody Maker with the front page headline "Erotic Record Show," <laughs> which oh. is a, a reference, of course, to Je T'aime Moi Non Plus. Of course, but it also reminds me of my own fruitless entreaty to Norris McWhorter, <laughs> the <laughs> the prudish Nazi bastard, but. Steve does singles reviews and the intro to the singles column says, as a sharp-witted, cheery ex-brushhead, he typifies the baloney-free, hard-working attitude of today's straight commercial pop artists. Uh, well, he may be baloney-free, but he's everything else free as well, mm. unfortunately, because he doesn't really say anything very interesting, except that he has a go at John Peel. Does he, he says, now? Yeah, he says, I don't like John Peel. He sets himself up as the big I am. Because, of course, when you think of John Peel, the mm. first thing you think of is the guy who sets himself up as the big I am. Yeah. He goes around saying us and groups like Amen Corner are a load of blank and just teeny bopper crap. He may not actually say that, but that's his attitude. <laughs> well, I've got no time for him. So, the following week, One Road nudged up three places to number 18, and the week after that, it got to number 16, its highest position. The follow-up, Bring On Back The Good Times, went all the way to number 9 in August of this year, but when their next single, Baby I Know, failed to chart, Steve Ellis walked out on the band and signed a reputed solo deal for £100,000 with CBS. While Ellis was recording the soundtrack for the Joe Orton film Loot, but scoring no chart hits whatsoever, Love Affair rebranded as L.A., and they struggled on until they split up in 1971. That was quite the thing for bands, wasn't it? At the turn of the 60s. Um, kind of like getting shit, and but, but just initialising themselves. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's our tip for the top this week in Top of the Pops. One road from the Love Affair. It's a record that sort of really gets into the system after a while, too. I think it's going to be a big smash hit for them. Anyway, right now in Top of the Pops, let's go on to a very, very special song indeed, because 
we think that it could be one of the big smash hits of 1969, particularly in Europe. That's right, we are talking about the British entry for the 1969 Eurovision Song Contest. Boom, bang, a bang, top of the pops, and Lulu. <laughs> that one road is bound for the top 20 and it's a grower not a shower he then pivots towards a song that he feels could be one of the biggest sellers of the year boom bang a bang by lulu we've already discussed mary laurie and chart music number 38 and here she is performing this year's uk entry for the eurovision song contest which is taking place in madrid after cliff richard was absolutely shit on by ignorant foreigners last year well i thought he'd have enjoyed that no <laughs> i was thinking he's that same thing <laughs> It was picked up by the viewers of a Saturday night BBC One show, Happening for Lulu, which also featured the Johnny Harris Orchestra and Pan's People, who at this point were occasional performers on Top of the Pops only and wouldn't be a permanent fixture until 1970. Sorry, dads, they're not on this episode. With one song performed per week, culminating in a Song for Europe type show. This tune, written by Alan Morehouse who had written the World Cup March for the Joe Loss Orchestra in 1966, and Peter Warne, who wrote Kiss Me, Honey, Honey, Kiss Me for Shirley Basset, beat out entries by Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice and Elton John and Bernie Taupin, and is Lulu's follow-up to I'm a Tiger, which got to number nine for two weeks in December of 1968. It'll be available in your local record emporium tomorrow, and here she is plugging the single, her BBC show, and the Eurovision Song Contest, which will be broadcast on BBC One in three weeks' time. Oh, Eurovision, a chance to have a chit-chat about that. Lovely. (laughs) You may notice we're not really discussing Freeman's um, presenting skills much and that's that's testament to how good they are that's exactly yeah yeah, yeah. apart from apart Smooth. from he has the same failing as every radio one dj which is when he says a record i think that's going to go on to be a big smash hit it never does yes it's like, uh, <laughs> kiss of death isn't it you're all the time it's got, gonna definitely go to number one and it's just you know dewey defeats truman every time <laughs> Right at the beginning, we always talk about the camera crew barging in, and the opening shot of this is <laughs> yes. fucking amazing, isn't yes. it? Yeah. The camera just barges yeah, yeah. its way to the front, and the the kids are reacting like that. My second Ruckles reference, when Ron Decline marches into the office <laughs> with his henchmen. That's what the kids look yeah. like. Just absolute terror. It's like they mounted the camera on a Sherman tank. It just yes. rolls straight. It's a scattering dolly birds left and right. Yeah. The only sadness is that it doesn't keep on going right over Lulu. <laughs> spare us. Everybody's got the clap and, and oh! decades of infuriatingly bubbly mumsiness. It's weird because on the previous <laughs> song, there's nice gliding, almost steady cam moves through the clouds. But this is uh, during the Love Affair song. It's just the camera yeah. work's been brilliant but, so far. There was that. There was that shot in um, cunt, cunt, cunty, cunty, mm. cunt, cunt. <laughs> 
um, where um, the, the, the shot's gone right up the neck of the base. Yeah, yeah. At Dave yeah. D. It looks beautiful, man. There's so much thought and care and attention gone into this. But at this, they clearly just gave the camera to some hooligan. <laughs> this is a time when Eurovision was taken very seriously in the UK, wasn't it? And uh, there's been a lot of mithering in the in the papers that uh, this song's actually a poor representation of uh, British musical talent. Bill Martin, for example, who wrote Puppet on a String, was, was moaning in this week's Melody Maker that the song, quote, doesn't give Lulu the chance to show off her bubbling personality. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah, he also pointed out that the Music Publishers Association, who decided upon the songs for this year's Song for Europe, turned down Good Times, which Cliff Richard has recorded and has already jumped up 20 places to number 16. Uh, The next tremolo single, Hello World, which will get to number 14 at the end of next month. And My Sentimental Friends, which will be picked up by Herman's Hermits and is going to get to number two uh, for two weeks in May. So, you know... People are taking this shit seriously. Yeah, yeah, but there was there was something exquisitely contemptuous about the way Britain treated Eurovision in those days. Yeah. It's like, okay, we're one of the two elite pop producing nations in the world. But yes. we'll we'll join in this bit of fun. You mm. know. Yes. We'll join in this lark with all of you weird countries of shepherds and <laughs> reindeer eaters. But <laughs> Obviously, we'll have to drop our standards a bit just to make it a contest. And they get really angry when we don't win every year. Yeah, but it's, you know, but we've given them a trite bit of shit somebody wrote in 10 minutes, you know, which no one would ever have Mm. had the nerve to put out as a single on any other day. But Mm. the attitude is like, well, this is what you foreigners like, right? It's called (laughs) bing bong biddle bong. And it it swings like a hammock. And there's there's your song for Europe, your garlic crunching continental monkeys enjoy because <laughs> at this point a lot of british people were uh, it was popular with the viewers because at this point a lot of british people were peering into the the monochrome murk and it, it might as well have been the moon landing you know what i mean yes. these brown-eyed gentlemen in frilly shirts with bazookas <laughs> were like representatives of an alien civilization about which we yeah. knew nothing you know and there's yeah. always the possibility they might have ray guns. But from the <laughs> point of view of the music business, it was like, yeah, you know, we've got to make this shit because it's for Eurovision. <laughs> I mean, we sneer quite rightly at our continental chumps for introducing Euroese into song titles for the Eurovision Song Contest. But this clearly shows that we're just as much to blame. I mean, this didn't start until about uh, a year previously when Holland did Ring Ding a Ding. And Monaco did boom, bada, boom. Uh, That was in 1967. And, of course, last year, Spain worked in 138 Lars in their song La La La. But, you know, we're as guilty as everyone else with this. completely. I mean, and and also the success of this in Britain. I mean, it proves that, that, yeah, we had a healthy taste for this kind of shite as well. If you if you listen mm. to Lulu's like other records, say from round about now, in a few months she's going to release Oh Me Oh My, which is a debut single for Atlantic. And I'm never going to make yeah. a real case for Lulu, but that's produced by Tom Dowd and Jerry Wexler, and it's got strings by Arif Martin. Mm. And you can imagine what that sounds like. It, it, it's not a bad record. Yes. And in America, that was her biggest hit since To Sir With Love in '67. But over here, yeah. didn't even get in the top fifty because what we wanted from Lulu. Was was shite like this, <laughs> you know, a record mm. that she herself hated, and I think probably continues to despise, and probably didn't have many complaints about 
you know, heard it through the grapevine, keeping it at number number two. I mean, even to Sir yeah. with Love itself, um, one of the biggest selling singles in the US in '67. That wasn't deemed worthy of being an A side over here. It was B side status mm. in 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 England. Yeah. So I think we wanted Lulu to sing squawky shit like this. It's Brit schlager, isn't it? It's <laughs> it's schlong life, if you will. You, you can't really brood for the can. You can't really love any song in which the orchestral flourishes are what you'd hear in a black and white comedy when someone sits in a water barrel <laughs> and trips over their own trousers. Uh-huh. These are not swinging sounds. But it sort of won. It came joint first mm. yes. in Eurovision. Yeah. And partly because this is back when other countries in Europe would vote for Britain because it made them think of the Beatles and Bobby Moore putting his coat down in front of the Queen as he could walk <laughs> through a puddle. You know. yeah. um, and also, you know, that war. Mm. You know that time when you could go round Greece with a Union Jack patch on your backpack and yeah, people would come, up and, get murdered. People come up and clap you on the shoulders. Yeah, I, well, it's you talk about this Euro ease, but I think part of the reason why this is called Boom Banger Bang, it's not just to cross language barriers, it's to say subliminally, remember us. perhaps this chorus will jog your memory you know one minute you had a swastika flying from your town hall and then all of a sudden there was no town hall well (laughs) yep (laughs) here we are this was before the days when just the words great britain sounded like a piece of garden furniture crashing through a cafe bar window and we still we still had that goodwill from the second world war before we pissed it all away Largely by never shutting up about it. Yes. This is Carnaby Street umpar-par, isn't it? <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Let's not forget that it was the people who selected this. And, you know, as we've learned, never let British people vote upon things to do with Europe. No, quite, quite. <laughs> From this point, it looks like an astute move because it is. It's very much aimed at middle Europa, isn't it? Mm. Same people who would eventually, presumably, buy Live is Life by Opus. Um, mm. It's got that balance yeah. half feel. It, I mean, basically, a song that appeals to both children and grown-ups whose minds are going and who are returning to a yes. childish state. So, yeah, I mean, I, I have a lot of problems with Lulu in a, in terms of a, a, her as a personality, but I always have a residual sympathy for her because of the appalling way that um, Davy Jones and the Monkeys treated her. Um, so, I, I, you know, I was... Go into detail on that one, Neil. I didn't know this. Well, no, um, you know... Um, she, it was much rumoured that she was um, she was a, a, a girlfriend uh, to, to Davy Jones, but she soon discovered the truth that he had a long term. He had been playing playing her along basically, and she had a he had a long time girlfriend, Linda Haynes, who Lulu found out later was uh, pregnant with his child, and um, who later became the, the first right. of Jones's three wives. Um, but years later, Jones wrote about the time that he spent with Lulu in his autobiography, and, and he said, um, in show business or any other business that exposes you to the media, when you are seen out with a member of the opposite sex, the press assumes that the next step is marriage. Ridiculous, really. I couldn't have. My <laughs> girlfriend would have punched me out. But um, checking back, I was reading, the uh, as you do, a, a July 1968 yeah. issue of Monkey Spectacular magazine, um, where Lulu gets a three-page feature talking about um, Davy Jones and Davy Jones as I know him, the adorable Davy Jones as I know him, with lovely little subheadings like "Meet Davy's sisters." Davy was considerate. Um, Davy to the rescue. <laughs> Saw Davy at Christmas. It's a really, it's, it's a nuts thing. 
But yeah, I, I think she was treated a bit shoddily by uh, by Davy. So I've mm. got a little bit of sympathy for her still. Yeah, his only true love is in the stable. <laughs> That's true. I mean, once again, the kids, both the actual kids and the dollies, they're having a job cutting an acceptable length of rug to this one, aren't they? But they're having a go, which is nice. There's a one girl in the miniskirt and the short curly hair who's um, giving it lots of um, arm-related flourishes and shaking her head a lot. Do you see mm. her? Mm. But but the arm-related flourishes, I mean, that's all you can fucking do to this record. Even Lulu can do nothing but swing her arms in a kind of orangutanish way. Yeah, as if she's got a massive beer stein in her hands. It's music and movement. <laughs> it's music and movement music. Mm. It's not It's not dance, danceable music, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, no. I, I, I can't lie, I don't mind this. Um, <laughs> compared to your two disdain for it, I don't mind it at all because it's a fucking Eurovision song. You know, it is. Mm. It does what it says on the tin. It gets. <laughs> yeah. It gets the Germans swaying about. It's shaking puppet on a string, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Just a bit slower and a bit worse. And but no, but instantly, instantly recognisable. You feel you know it the first time you've heard it. So it makes it the perfect uh, Eurovision entrant, I think. Well, twenty seconds into it, you've got it, haven't you? You've got this song completely, and you understand it completely. People are going to be sitting there going, oh, yeah, we'll piss this one again. <laughs> but the thing is, this effectively ends Lulu's career as a pop star, doesn't it? She's already got the, the uh, BBC uh, light entertainment show, which is always the kiss of death. But also, you know, she's she's built a career on being a, a gutsy, bluesy singer, and then people like Janis Joplin are pitching up. She was working, you know, yeah. with Atlantic over in America, but it never really happened in terms of her mm. launching that other phase of her career. And, of course, she's just got married to Morris Gibb. Mm-hmm. But she tried to do uh, Dusty in Memphis, yes. didn't she? And yeah, she, she did. She, she ain't Dusty, mm. so it's just, mm. you know, mm. it's always going to look like a poor relation. Yeah. Quite right, though, that this song was uh, blacklisted in 1991 during the Gulf War. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> yeah. So, two weeks from now, Boom Bang A Bang entered the charts at number 22 and stayed there the following week as she made her way to Spain. In the end, the song had to make do with sharing first place with Spain, Holland and France, resulting in the Eurovision Committee debating a four-way sing-off the following night, but letting the results stand. <laughs> And uh, extending the programme by another 20 minutes because everybody had to sing the fucking song again. Yeah. No, it's a shambles. About an hour and a half, wasn't it, Taylor? Tell us. Tell us, a wise man. Yeah, the whole of 1969 Eurovision Song Contest is available on YouTube, although it's all in foreign, which makes it even more incomprehensible. But they've got this bizarrely complicated (laughs) voting system where each jury had 10 points that they could split unevenly yeah. between as many records as they wanted. So yeah. like, you, quite often you get one country will get five points and then five will get one point. Um, and this was combined with a complete lack of any tie-break system. Um, and so to everyone's uh, immense surprise, you get a four-way draw and nobody on or off stage has got any idea what to do about it. Yeah. Um, this is coming live from fascist Spain masquerading as a jolly place to sing jolly songs. But mm. even in that era of uh, iron discipline, <laughs> Spain was not the most organised place in the world. So there's just this complete shambles on stage while they try and work out what to do. Uh, oh, it's hilarious. But it's yeah. worth watching, even though it's horrible, because first of all, what's remarkable is what an unfussy production it is. Um, it's just yeah. a theatre stage done up sort of like a new town shopping precinct with all these 
fake flowers and an ugly modern sculpture in the middle, which turns out to have been a Dali original. Yes. Seen as ever to lend artistic <laughs> credibility to the regime. And an audience <laughs> of unsmiling men in dinner jackets who all know where Lorca is buried. Um, <laughs> And they're, they're perpetually disapproving-looking wives in fur coats. And nobody's mm. enjoying it. They all no. look really surly. they got their chins on their hands. They've all got those dark glasses like Lenny Peters, you know. It's like real yes. corroding fascist chic. Um, it's really odd and really unlike entertainment. And there's some sort of weird entries. Uh, Monaco are in it. And they send, yes. like, this freaky stage school kid dressed, dressed like a lift operator. Yeah, who's the favourite? Yeah, he does a song about his mum. No. <laughs> Ireland have got shaking Sandy Shaw in, a <laughs> like, a green nighty, bounding around, like, as if the floor's hot, you know. Uh, who else? Holland have got a, a sort of a mm. solid lady with primary school kid's hair playing a Spanish guitar. Everyone's trying to ingratiate a little bit. But mm. mostly you just watch it and think, <laughs> whoever's on, you just think, stop fucking smiling while you sing. Mm. It makes you look like you're performing at gunpoint. Um, yes. It's really mm. unpleasant. But, yeah, you can see why Lulu did well, because it's better than most other yeah, yeah. songs in this. Yeah. And what is cool is, you know how they used to have the conductor from each country would yes. come out before the singer? and take a bow uh and in this every one of them comes out and they all look like a, a cinema manager from Sydney yes. coming out <laughs> yes. to apologize because the projector's broken down until the british guy uh, what's his name johnny harris the great johnny harris yeah he comes out he's got ginger sideburns down to his jaw <laughs> uh he's got a limp uh, he looks like he's just been woken up by a park keeper <laughs> prodded with his prong you know brushed the twigs and the sweet wrappers off himself and mm. staggered off to conduct these these tuxedoed phalangists through boom, bang, a bang. Johnny Harris, to my mind, did the best ever version of uh, Light My Fire. Oh. Beautiful. Well, you know the, the Shirley Bassey version? Yeah. It's basically that, the instrumental version of that, that he did for an LP called Movements. Uh-huh. Which came out this year and is uh, it was Spike Milligan's favourite LP of all time. Oh. And Lulu's there in a coral pink mini dress, which not only mm. clashes with her own hair, it clashes with the set and with the false flowers on the mm. set, mm. right? Mm. And the thing about this clip that's really disturbing is that Lulu does crazy girl eyes all yes. through it, right? It and she does it even more on the Eurovision. She's so fired up and so desperate to communicate to these people who don't necessarily understand the language. She's doing this unbelievable mugging, and it looks like it's not comfortable. It looks like when someone who's visibly not quite right in the head is trying to seduce you. But mm-hmm. but the erotic charge is actually a sharp edge of panic. Um, they may as well have a flashing red light strapped onto the top of the head. You know, fastened on with a buckle under the chin. It's like you want to sort of walk backwards while smiling. And I'm, you know, I'm usually pathetically easy to entice erotically. But, the, yeah, the sight of googly Lulu makes me want to go and live in a lighthouse eating bromide sandwiches. 
It's not comfortable. <laughs> it really isn't. Yeah. I mean, Janis Joplin's just hassling some bloke, telling him that he needs a mama and all this kind of stuff. Meanwhile, Lulu's there going, come closer, I cuddle me tight. <laughs> The Eurovision result propelled the song up to number nine and two weeks later, it made it all the way to number two. Held off the top spot by I Heard It Through the Grapevine by Marvin Gaye, making it her biggest solo hit ever. The follow-up, Oh Me, Oh My, I'm a Fool for You Baby, would only get to number 47 in November of this year and Lulu would be reduced to prowling the light entertainment wilderness for much of the early 70s until David Bowie lobbed her the man who sold the world, which got to number three in February of 1974. That's not all he lobbed her, if rumours are to be believed. Oh, really? (laughs) Uh, Good on you, Lulu. The Eurovision Song Contest there from Lulu. And right now we get back to the American scene. As a matter of fact, uh, if you don't know, Dean Martin's hit number 10 this week. This week. I'm wondering if we can kid Dean Martin over here to Great Britain for Top of the Pops. You never know. Anyway, we've got an American group and they've, they make sensational records. They've been in and out of the top 20 and they're just slightly out of it at the moment. They could dash back in. Call people, here come the times. Shills the forthcoming Euro splurge with his arm firmly linked with one of the kids. Yeah, it looks like she's helping him across the road. It looks more like he's a store detective at Chelsea Girl who's just made a citizen's arrest. (laughs) (laughs) Really does. It also looks like he's got a false arm because he's still in exactly the same stiff position. Like the right angle holding the mic. It looks like they've just lifted it up threaded this girl's arm through it and then put yeah. it back down again. <laughs> yeah. I wonder when the, the, the uh, you know, cavorting about with girls thing came in for Top of the Pots, whether it was there from the beginning or not. I don't, I'm not sure. But, but Freeman doesn't look uncomfortable no, about it, and neither no. does she, but it, it just looks odd. Yeah, I think she's probably heard the rumours. <laughs> she knows she's safe. I mean, he's 42 at this point, remember? Wow. And he does look like he's he's going to nip off to the bowls club afterwards with his uh, with his roll neck get up, uh, roll neck and a false arm. That's a good it's a good pre- preemptive look for Mister Hahn in Enter the Dragon. If only he had sort of strange yes. attachments for the end of it, <laughs> that would be great, wouldn't it? If he just sank his tiger paw into the camera at the end, <laughs> dawned off. He, he then goes into his chart spiel and threatens us with Dean Martin before introducing people by the times. Formed in Philadelphia in 1956, the Latin Airs began as a part-time doo-wop band who entered a talent contest sponsored by a local radio station and tip-top bread, where people could vote for their favourites by filling in a voucher on bread wrappers. But they were signed up by a local label before the contest finished. 
After the label changed their name to The Times, their very first single, So Much In Love, went all the way to number one in America and got to number 21 over here in August of 1963. Although they had a regular chart career in the US, they never came near our top 30 until this month when they put out their cover of the 1964 Barbara Streisand song which featured in the film Funny Girl. And it's up this week from number 29 to number 24 and here they are in the studio. Well chaps, as we've firmly established in previous episodes of Chart Music, the black Americans, a great bunch of lads. <laughs> But do we really need a doo-wop group in 1969? What's can, going on there? Well, that's the weird thing, isn't it? Because you can really tell they were a, a doo-wop group because of the, range, yeah. the bigger sort of old-school range of, of the city. Very Ink Spots kind of vibe to the lead singer and, yeah. and some of the low voices. And, and obviously, they're a bit older than the kind of the Temps and the Isleys, so their moves yeah. aren't quite as tight. Uh, they're kind of there's a looseness to the moves. I actually quite like this. I actually didn't mind this that much. It's not a bad record at all. But I got lost as I frequently do, especially for some reason with sixties pop shows, um, in one of those falling in love moments with a random person from the audience. Oh um, yes. Oh, there's a girl. Um, she's got a black sort of long bob and a white collared floral dress, and you only see her for about three seconds. But right. oh god, I, I totally fell in love with that, and I, and and yeah. So that this whole performance. If, if this sounds like you from fifty <laughs> years ago, get in touch with chart music. It's fucking beautiful, and she looks so fucking cool as well, and she's dancing really nicely as well. Unlike a few people who, as you as you mentioned previously, Al, um, just chatting, just having a chat, yeah. looking looking for the camera, having a chat. There's a bit of that going on. Um, but they, the, the times seem to be enjoying themselves anyway. Yes, it, they it, do. That's it all is, the it, it, it is. It's, right. it's good times, isn't it? At the <laughs> it's moment, good times. But but that doo-woppy thing is unmistakable in the range of the voices that they give, which makes them immediately antique in a way. In an age where yeah. you know other male black male vocal groups that are. Uh, do it, you know. I mean, think about it. Temptations are doing fucking psychedelic shack and baller confusion by this stage. Yeah. So this is a completely yeah. different kettle of fish. Yeah, we always yeah. make the mistake that everybody's going to be bang on the money at a certain point. Mm. In 1969, a lot of people still want this old stuff. Yeah, there will always be people trying to get music to do what it used to do and not liking what music is doing now, and that's precisely mm. who who the times are appealing to. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't uncommon in the 60s for soul groups to do really, really middle-of-the-road songs mm. in a mm. pretty generic style. You yeah. Know? Like on the album that this is from, they do all those like Jimmy Webb and Backrack and David. Oh, what an album. Are, what an yeah, album should... cover it is as well. Yeah. <laughs> the Times at the Seaside drawn yeah, yeah. really <laughs> frighteningly. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, these are great songs, but I mean, they're not really where soul was heading in 1969. And they're no. frankly not as good as those songs done in the more traditional orchestrated style. But I mean, there's examples of this which work fine because they sound so sweet on their own terms. It doesn't really matter that you're listening to something which by this point in time you'd sort of be entitled to call artistically cowardly uh, and irrelevant. But. I mean, this doesn't quite make it, but it's it's chunky enough mm. and it's sufficiently well sung. You just end up wishing they were doing a song you could believe in. You know what I mean? And it'd be yeah. a great record. Unfortunately, yeah. they're doing this song, which I hate, um, <laughs> for several yeah. reasons. And mainly because I fundamentally disagree with the premise, right? People who need people 
are the luckiest people. No. As someone who <laughs> resents no. and is hurt by the necessity of caring, I don't happen to agree with this. I think that mm. people who need people are vulnerable, trapped in perpetual emotional debt and not in control of their own happiness. So mm. if there's... If there's one thing you know you can't trust, it's people. Um, and it's like saying people who need it not to rain in March are the luckiest people in yeah. the world. People who need their cat to not jump up onto the kitchen counter are the luckiest people in the world. They're clearly not. Um, I mean, as a person who needs people and yet frequently goes a fortnight or more without seeing or speaking to anyone who isn't a doctor and doesn't work in a shop or drive a bus i beg to differ you know i would consider it lucky were i an emotional old man of hoy who could just sit in this room on my own and produce work instead of succumbing to the the wholly pathetic human weakness of needing people, which oh. I consider to be a curse. I mean, I I spent m- most of my life suspicious of human shitness, including my own, <laughs> and the compromises necessary to get on as a result of that shitness and tried to keep a distance, you know, and then in middle age realised that, in fact, I'm actually a naturally sociable and quite ambitious person. Whoops, too late now. So I don't need the Times telling me how lucky I am, right? Although I will take it from them before I take it from Barbara Streisand because, you know, at least they seem like nice fellas, which they do. Taylor, you've just got to whittle that down, three verses, make it all rhyme. You could have a song on your hands there. You could have a hit on your hands there that speaks to uh, today. Yeah, I know. It's (laughs) it's terrible, isn't it? (laughs) By the by, the flip of this on the seven inch for love of Ivy is, is better. I think. I think they should have made that the A side. But this is this is supper club music, isn't it? Yeah. Well, that's what Americans call it. You know, we call it chicken in a basket. But once again, <laughs> it's good chicken. The chicken's a lot chlorinated, <laughs> mm. and you know the breadcrumbs are panko. Yeah. This is going to get them a lot of bookings. Being on top of the pops, you must have seen that advert for nightclubs in Plymouth. From around yes. this time, haven't you? Yes. Oh, Neil, have you seen I it? I haven't seen this, no. It's like the, the sixpence is just ramming its crotch into your face <laughs> until you suffocate. It's the uh, the nightclubs are the birdcage, the cascade, and the Commodore. And it's, oh, it's remarkable. I mean, my favourite bit in it is, well, the, there's that DJ who looks like Fred Dynage yeah. at, at some, you know, local TV award ceremony. But uh, the barman who looks like Adrian Street, but is a lot camper. Yeah. The way he drops the change into this bloke's hand, it's just dripping with uh, <laughs> homoeroticism. <laughs> if you didn't know, and I was to tell you that one of the acts on this episode of Top of the Pops was going to have a number one in five years' time, these would be the last you'd pick, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah, mm. they, look, they look like they're on the way out. I mean, yeah. But one thing you can definitely say for the times, right... Which really impressed me, right? When they leave the camera on them at the end through the whole of the fade-out, which is really unusual and a bit yeah. of a cruel thing to do to a group because they have to find something to do physically as the record dies away yeah. and you're still looking at them. And they're doing that synchronised hand dancing, you know what yes. I mean? Mm. Usually when you see that over a fade-out, mm. uh, people stop doing the synchronised hand movements yes. in a really shit, disorganised way. Yeah. Right? 
Um, they just sort of flop at different times, and it's yeah. like a deflating balloon, you know. Uh, and they don't. They keep going right until the last note mm. has died away, and then they just stop in unison. It's yeah. really impressive. Yeah. First time I saw it, I was so impressed. I rewound the whole thing uh, and watched it again in a new light, but it just sounded the same. <laughs> and I, uh. I was left thinking, fucking hell, I need people. <laughs> There's one scene uh, that I, I can't fail to mention. There's a there's a proper bro creamed up dad uh, right at the front in the bottom right hand corner with his partner, and all of a sudden they get yanked out of shot by the camera crew, and you never <laughs> see them again, man. <laughs> it's like they're they're just um, following up on a few inquiries in the wake of the Cray twins trial. <laughs> So the following week, people jumped eight places to number 16, its highest position. The follow-up, a cover of the 1941 Billie Holiday standard God Bless the Child, failed to chart and they were seemingly done in this country. But amazingly, they roared back in 1974, getting to number 18 with You Little Trustmaker and number one with Miss Grace in January of 1975. I love that song. Story, Pop, because everybody's got to have somebody, and that's for sure. That was the times there, and people glad to have them in Top of the Pops, and I hope they come back very soon. Now, along with the Cliff Richard fans, I think the Elvis Presley fans can feel very happy too. He's coming this week at number 17 with If I Can Dream, and I think Elvis is heading for the top 10, make no mistake about that. But talking about big jumps, last week at number 26, this week right into the top 20, just outside the top 10 at number 11. It's a beautiful sound, and Top of the Pops welcomes back the boys who've won so many awards, it's unbelievable. This one's called the 1st of May, and it's the Bee Gees. When I was small, and Christmas trees were tall, to love while others used to play Freeman hopes the times come back soon and then imparts good news for Cliff and Elvis fans before introducing the 1st of May by the Bee Gees We've already covered the Brothers Gibb in chart music from the 41 and here they are in their Mark 1 phase It's the follow-up to I've Gotta Get a Message to You, which became their second number one in September of 1968, when it knocked Do It Again by the Beach Boys off the top, and it stayed there for a week until it was usurped by Hey Jude. It's also the lead cut from the forthcoming LP Odessa, which is due out at the end of the month, and is named after the birth date of Barry's dog. They've had a lot of publicity this month due to Morris Gibb marrying Lulu just over a fortnight ago, but unbeknownst to the pop-crazed youngsters, there are ructions afoot behind the scenes. Barry has made it clear that he disapproved of the marriage as both parties are too young. Robin's wife has kicked off in the press over her husband being replaced as lead singer by Barry, and Robin himself is walking around with a face like a smacked arse because his choice for the next single has been relegated to the B-side. 
and it's all getting in the way of their forthcoming movie project, a Boa War spoof entitled Lord Kitchener's Little Drummer Boy. Meanwhile, 1st of May has leapt 15 places from number 26 to number 11. Now then, chaps, if there's a pattern to be detected in this episode, it's what the sports pages would call the want-away front man. (laughs) Dave D, Steve Willis, and now Robin Gibb. It's like the end of the 70s, all these bands are breaking up. The Bee Gees are a a blind spot for me um, Mm. that I know I should investigate. uh, Look, 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 I have to say, obviously... The disco records, fucking fantastic. There's no argument yes. with that. Yeah, um, yeah, but I know I'm meant to explore Mark I Bee Gees and early Bee Gees, and particularly Odessa, the, that album. But they're a blind spot that I should perhaps investigate. I think I gave Odessa a go once, and I just couldn't be asked. Um, mm. Didn't really need that music journalist badge that you only get if you like that record. And also, I'd have to start worshipping the Pet Shop Boys or something. For that. They're mm. similarly joyless for me. I have a problem with them. Partly, it's nothing to do with their music. It's to do with them. And, you yeah. know, him leaving because he didn't get his single as the first choice is, is, sums that up. It's this po-facedness, this sort of humorlessness. Or, or humour only when they can be in control of it. But, but I mean, to be honest with you, a big part of my dislike of the Bee Gees is knowing that they've made some decisions on probably one of my least favourite records and one of my least favourite number one records of all time, which is leaping mm. ahead years. But I hate You Win Again by the, Beatles, mm. uh, by the Bee Gees. I hate the drum yes. sound. I hate the way that record makes me feel. Um, and I've got to say, this record, well, it, it's just fucking boring, man. I mean, please, somebody... Yes. Educate me. Why should I like this and why should I like Odessa? Because this is I'm prodding this. I don't want to disturb it too much because it might start smelling worse. But I don't really get it. And and Massachusetts, I just found creepy. I'd probably salvage from the Mark One BGs from the pre-disco era. Maybe message to you and um, perhaps New York Mining Disaster 1941. But yeah. that's about it. And this, I'm sure it's meant to be a classic, but I ain't getting it. I ain't feeling it no. either. No, you're right. It, I think Mark One BGs are mostly shit too. Mm. Um, yeah, it's this is like somebody's vacuumed out all the interesting bits from the Walker Brothers and hidden them, you know. <laughs> and you're just left with this thing that doesn't really know what it is, sort of trembling in the spotlight uh, and trying to sell you this useless emotion. You know, there's something really cavernously empty about this record which yeah the 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 massive warehouse echo on the vocals just accentuates mm. it's like they've taken a route one approach to writing an emotional ballad um and it's like they they have no actual real feelings to draw on because they're psychopaths so <laughs> it feels very cynical and very manipulative they've just mixed together these basic ingredients you've got a stair-step piano booming mm. vocals singing about childhood and loss and this sort of cloying feel. Mm. And that's literally all there is to it. There's no yeah. juice. It's like, who cares? It's like a a facsimile of human frailty from uh, shark-eyed businessmen, um, as well as being another example from this episode of pop music sliding towards Vegas. And it just sounds horrible. 
on its own terms. The beginning of this song has got that very specifically Lancastrian unpleasantness, like (laughs) Jennifer Eccles by the Hollies, you know, and uh, and all those Davy Jones showcases on Monkey's Records, where he turns up his Manchester accent. It's a real cloth-capped cobblestone misery. You know, <laughs> I mean, at least Matchstick Men and Matchstick Cats and Dogs didn't pretend to be deep and emotional, you know. And I just, I don't believe <laughs> this record. I, I believed them more when they were singing about being stuck down a mine. Yes. <laughs> well, they, they go from being small and Christmas trees being tall to, to them being tall and Christmas trees being small. I mean, how fucking tall do they get? But that's right, the, no, this, that's this the conceit bollocks, of the record. Yeah. The whole record was written from that first line. And mm. it reveals its emptiness because of that. They're just happy to get from one the, that line to the line about being tall and Christmas trees being small. They're happy yeah. to do yeah. that, and there's a smugness on their face when they get to that. That is cleverness yeah, in songwriting, according to the Bee Gees. Yeah, at this yeah. Point. but I mean, you know, I mean, we're slagging it off, but if I have to have a Christmas tree in my house, um, it's going to be as small as possible. Mm. Yeah. You know, I originally thought they're saying, "Oh, now we're now we're absolute giants." Uh, but no, what they're saying is now we've grown up and we don't need ostentatious ornamentation. Just a little tree, you know. Thing is, preferably white or silver. That's progressive, man. But but Christmas trees got bigger over the years, Al. That's the thing. Even if you were small, Christmas trees were never that tall. And and yeah. I've, been, no. I've been trying to persuade my kids um, of the virtues of me not having to go up the fucking attic every year and get the big Christmas tree down and actually having what I had because I've got photographic evidence as it were yes you know of the G clamp tree that you clamped to a table and was literally about a foot high roll roll the G clamp tree (laughs) never too late for you and me but yeah you have entire shops full of Christmas tat now um, but yeah, the, the first yeah. line antagonises me about this song. And, it, it just yeah. goes, and what Taylor's saying about um, the arrangement and the voice in particular, that Lancastrian thing, Gibbs, uh, the, the, you know, the lead singer's voice, he, I can only stomach his voice when he does the disco falsetto, when it's mm. in this sort of naked state and it's quite sort of tinny. And abrasive, almost. It's just horrible. It's a horrible sound. I don't. I don't see why. Yeah. As Alan mm. says, as Alan Freeman says, they were winning loads of awards and stuff. I don't see what the mm. fuss is about. No, and it's no. doubly bad that the sort of the pained fake sincerity of the singing. It yeah, just mm. adds to the misery of these awful lyrics. I, I don't want to harp on this, but <laughs> yes, it's they really believe it's a clever switch to say. Yeah, when I was small, Christmas tree small. Now we are tall, and Christmas trees are small. And it's look, I I don't want to go into it too much because you you know you end up sounding like a it's hack stand up material. You know, <laughs> like some scrawny posh cunt in a green t shirt deconstructs the hits, right? You know, what I mean? just, just before angling for an applause break by suggesting that Donald Trump has bad hair. You know, mm. it's like you sound like you're going to just read the lines out slowly and sarcastically, and then look around with an expression of mock confusion, waiting Mm. for the laughter. But it's got to be said, it doesn't make any sense because, yeah, Christmas trees, there's a jump in scale. They're either 10 inches high or they're at least four foot. Mm. There's those little ones like what Envision continuity announcers would have on the thing, or like you see in care homes. (laughs) And then there's a big jump. So no Christmas tree that a child would consider tall can realistically be called small by an adult. They should have gone with when I was small and vacuum cleaners were tall. 
because you can get the mini Dysons nowadays, can't you? So that yeah, that would have worked, BGs. And then just when everybody is already sickened and bewildered by this overextended Christmas tree motif, they come back at the end. Yes, and it goes when I was small and Christmas trees were tall. Do 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 do. Like he can't even be bothered. Why do they find it hard to write the next line? (laughs) Oh, Christ. (laughs) So it's like the whole song has been like a beckoning finger trying to draw you in with this Christmas tree bullshit. And then just when you get there, the hand spins round and gives you a two-fingered salute. Mm. Horrible. I wanted this song to be really good and I was looking forward to listening to it at last because, you know, the 1st of May, the previous year, I was born. So, you know, I was expecting that the Bee Gees were going to, you know, going to celebrate me a little bit. But uh, no, they didn't. (laughs) So I was upset by that. The camera crew putting in some work here. There's some nice under-the-piano shots. There's a lot of care and attention uh, being applied here to the Bee Gees. And uh, they're being showcased a lot better than they were in an unnamed TV show that was mentioned by Simon Napier-Bell in the book You Don't Have to Say You Love Me, uh, where the rest of the group was superimposed without their knowledge inside Robin Gibbs' quote, goatee mouth, making <laughs> them look as if they were performing under a shop awning. <laughs> so, you know, they've, they've done well to to get out of that. But I mean, you know, another theme. This is this is this is the year where loads of pop stars get married, and you know, the the impression is that all these crazy pop stars are finally settling down, and mm. you know, mm. growing up, becoming nice people. Yeah. Well, they've even got grown-up clothes. They've all got these good yeah. suits, which mm. would look cool in like an ITC thriller serial or mm. something. But on them, coupled with this music, it just seems sort of haughty and smugly adult, mm. you know. Yeah. Um, it's like, have you ever seen that? So, in fact, I mentioned it earlier, didn't I? That series, Special Branch, right? Which is a, yeah. an ITV show which started around this time. It's like an exciting drama serial uh, about Special Branch, mostly run by George Markstein, who's best known as Patrick McGoon's right-hand man on The Prisoner, but is also chiefly responsible for Who Dares Wins, the Ooh. Lewis Collins vehicle, and preposterously lustful love letter to the SAS. Mm. Um, and this is like a sort of an early run of that. It's quite, quite reactionary uh, in its attitudes. But the star of it originally was Darren Nesbitt, who, and he was like right. TV's first right-wing swinger. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, I guess, derived from James Bond or something, but you, you would get these people culminating in, I guess, the professionals. But he works for the generally quite reactionary special branch and clearly holds those views himself. But he mm. dresses like Austin Powers and he's driving around in a fancy sports car, like charming dollies in London and all that. Yeah. Right? And that's what these Bee Gees remind me of. He's yeah. like, it's like a macho dandyism built on a, a reactionary base. Mm. Um, and, you know, I mean, they were always that, but it doesn't really matter when they're making fabulous music, and this isn't mm. isn't fabulous music. Oh, and the other yeah. great thing about early Special Branch, by the way, is that the, the newbie detective constable is called D.C. Morrissey. So, uh, <laughs> so people keep saying, like, Morrissey is an idiot. <laughs> Where the hell is Morrissey? <laughs> and he has to infiltrate some student radicals, like played by Nicola Padgett and uh, yeah. Tom Chadbon. And they keep calling him a fascist. It's very funny. <laughs> 
<laughs> so the following week, 1st of May, jumped six places to number five, its highest position. The follow-up, Tomorrow Tomorrow, got to number 23 in July of this year, and they closed out 1969 with Don't Forget to Remember, getting to number two in September, held off the number one spot by Bad Moon Rising by Creedence Clearwater Revival. But this performance would be the last one Robin Gibb made with the band for a while, because a week later he announced he was pulling out of the film deal, and the next day he quit the band. Lord Kitchener's Little Drummer Boy was never made, unfortunately, but the remaining brothers would go on to make Cucumber Castle with Frankie Howard and Spike Milligan, which went out on BBC Two on Boxing Day 1970, by which time Robin had returned to the fold just in time for the grim slog that was the Bee Gees' early 70s. Have we seen Cucumber Castle? It's fucking appalling, isn't it? Um, yeah. It is. I mean, not just for blind faith, but Lulu's version of Mrs. Robinson is a, is a particular low. As is as mm. is the boys' acting, proving yes. their humorlessness. Ness. Yeah. Um, and when they try and be funny, Jesus Christ! Yeah. Bands making uh, TV films for BBC Two that go out on Boxing Day it just doesn't work, does it? <laughs> No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't at all. Apparently, it's the Bee Gees that we have to thank for this episode being discussed because uh, I've heard this has come from Morris Gibbs' um, video collection. He he recorded it uh, when it was on because the BBC wiped it immediately because that's what they do. So, cheers, Morris. Sorry, we coated you. Don't ask me why, but time has passed us by. Someone else moved in from far away. Well, we've told you all about the challenges. There's Donald Pierce and Scylla Black and Sandy Shaw and Dean Martin and Elvis Presley all on the go. Amen Corner still waiting at number two. But again, in Top of the Pops this week, number one to Peter Sarsted. You talk like Marlena Dietrich And you dance like Zizi Jamais Freeman runs off a list of mainly rubbish acts trying to get to number one but is forced to concede that this week's chart topper is the same as last week. Where do you go to my lovely by Peter Sarstedt. Born in Delhi in 1941, Peter Sarstedt was the son of a tea plantation manager who was relocated to Croydon at the age of 13 when his father died. Along with his brothers, Richard and Clive, he formed the skiffle group The Fabulous Five, which mutated into the beat group The Saints, with Richard as lead singer. But the band split up when Richard was offered a solo deal, changed his name to Eden Kane, and scored a number one in 1961 with Well I Ask You. 
Sarstedt spent the early 60s as the bassist and backing singer for his brother until 1965, when Eden Kane decided to emigrate to Australia, which led to him moving to Copenhagen and latching on to the folk boom. He returned to London in 1967 and was picked up by United Artists a year later. His debut single, I Am A Cathedral, flopped, but his next single was this. It runs at 4 minutes and 45 seconds, but could have been even longer. Just like chart music, really, eh, chaps? <laughs> the label demanded that he trim off an extra 30 seconds, and it was the highest new entry at number 18 a month ago. And last week, it knocked If Paradise Is Half As Nice by Amen Corner off number one, and is at its second week on the summit of Mount Pop. And here he is, in the studio. Neil, get him first, quickly. <laughs> Well, um, yeah, British uh, British pop can mainly, over its history, be characterised by its kind of relationship with its own past and the American present. But spasmodically, now and then, it does aim for the sophistication of continental Europe, which isn't always a bad thing. I'm the queen of the rapping scene. <laughs> but, but, you know, it's not always a bad thing. I mean, think of the mods love for no. Italian suits and think of how Krautrock and, uh, you know, Italian disco have yeah, an impact yeah. on British pop. It's not always a bad thing. But in the singles chart, it usually means British people using European stereotypes, you know, from David Whitfield back in the day all the way through to Rene Renato. But I would say that the worst Ooh. example of it is probably this. And if you download Where Do You Go To My Lovely as an MP3 as I did and open it up in Windows Media Player, it puts it in the genre uh, chanson. Um, was, you know, the setup of this song, Street Kid Becomes Rich Socialite But Can't Escape Her Past, becomes basically pretty quickly an excuse for a colossal um, smart arsedness, um, nasty song, uh, which basically piles a lot of high ticket brand names and celebrity names, drawn mm. out to a ridiculous length, as you've said. It's nearly five fucking minutes long. That is too long for a pop single. Um mm. So we get, yes, Marlena Dietrich and, and the Rolling Stones and Sasha Distel and Sorbonne and Picasso, all these things reeled off, each of them having, I don't know, a little unpleasant tagline of a lyric usually. The particularly the one that the one that gets to me yes, is we, we know. We know, don't we, pop crazy youngsters. <laughs> well, well, we'll see. The one that the one that really gets to me is with your carefully designed topless swimsuit you get an even suntan on your back and on your legs. There's just something mm. revolting about that. Um, and just the... F- Isn't a topless swimsuit just some pants? <laughs> um, you go they, on the beach in your pants. I, I, I think they were conceived of and designed. God knows what they were. Yeah, just a pair of pants, I presume. But the fact mm. that her name, the, 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 the girl he's singing about, is uh, Marie Claire kind of yes. reveals the depth of his European knowledge. I mean, she might as well have been called... Um, Chambon- Bella. Or Chambossi Nouvelle or something. I don't know. Yes. But, but his delivery... I mean, it's, it's all right. We, we can establish it's a pretty awful song. His delivery makes it even worse. His, his kind of pseudo-accent. And the bit, you know, you know the bit I'm going to mm. say. The bit when he follows the phrase for a laugh with... Yes. Fucking hell, man. The way yeah. this performance goes in for a close-up every time he hits the chorus and basically fills out the frame with that fucking tash... Um, now, yes. as aforementioned, sported by 98% of hipster London. Um, it's mm. revolting. But the question is, this was a big, big seller this year, obviously. The question yeah. is, did listeners in 1969 buy it to kind of laugh at it or because they believed in it and were moved by its mystery and sophistication? Mm. Now, if the former, 
fur him off. But if the latter, to paraphrase Chris Needham, you know, burn this world and burn all you greens with it. Yes. <laughs> I've seen much discussion of this record. I mean, whenever I've, I've, I've have mentioned this record in the past and it's always come up on Facebook anyway, in discussion of the worst record ever made. And most people in response to this being mooted, it, it's, it's a kind of, don't think too much about it, just enjoy it. Well, no, fuck you. Mm. And, and the way his chest puffs up when he sings Boulevard Saint-Michel as well makes me want to slap him particularly hard. I mm. tried to do a bit of digging about Peter Sarstead, but truth be told, it repulsed me. So my research um, stopped pretty quickly. I found an article um, with the headline, Peter Sarstead's Tears Help Create His Songs. Um, and I mm. didn't pursue any further than that. But beyond <laughs> beyond the nastiness of the song's outlook and the, the, the slight creepiness of looking inside someone's head, um, it's mm. the fucking monotony of it that, that's the most irritating, I would say. And where I put it mentally... It's actually alongside something like, I don't know, Seasons in the Sun. It, mm. it, 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 it's kind, I know this won the 1969 Ivan Novello Award jointly with Space Oddity, but for me, mm. it's, it's Seasons in the Sun fronted by, by Peter Wingard. I, I don't like it, never have <laughs> yeah. liked it. Peter Wingard and, came up in my notes as well. He, look, mm, he looks like a he, Jason King action figure that's been held up against a three-bar fire. <laughs> he does. I know we're meant to just treat it as perhaps not just... A, Perhaps a bit of fun, and but but I can't treat it as a bit of fun. It just grinds on and on and on with a mm. with a tune that actually becomes more dislikable the longer it goes on. And fundamentally, at root, what we get to is, I mean, one of the things, by the way, that I said about the Beatles was that they were all about craft. That was probably unfair, actually. That's massively mm. unfair. I would apply that to, say, the BG song that we've just listened to. It is just joyless craft. There's yeah. something of that going on here as well. But beyond that, it's the nastiness, the vituperativeness of it. Um, mm. You know, this is somebody that he grew up with. And he's now singing in just a horribly creepy, vengeful, hateful way about this girl. Yeah. Um, and, and ending with the I can look inside your headline. I mean, what the fuck is going on? Um, a deeply yeah. unpleasant record. Well, I've both. shagged you. Is what he's saying. Well, I guess so, but musically and spiritually, on all levels, I find this record repulsive. Yeah, Neil, last episode you said that the Rolling Stones were more psychedelic than the Beatles, and, <laughs> and some of the pop craze youngsters jumped up and down and waved their fists. Yes, at you. I, I sensed that. Explain yourself, young man. Well, truth be told, uh, the moment those words came out of my mouth, I thought, oh, fuck. Because to, to my mind, Rolling Stones and Psychedelia uh, just basically amounts to Mick Jagger looking like a right bell end in that pointy hat on the Satanic Majesties. LP cover, which is like a really big and rubbish wibbly wobbler. I like the preposterousness of that record, and I like some of the songs on it. I mean, I sensed as soon as I said that that it might wind some people up. Um, and I would like to stress something that perhaps I didn't communicate effectively last time. I do like the Beatles, you know. There's certain songs by them I absolutely yeah. love. I'm only sleeping. Yeah, we're not in Simon's gang. <laughs> You know, I mean, you know, she said tomorrow never knows. Strawberry fields. These songs, they, it tends to be the songs where I feel that the songs overwhelm them and their presence in a way. But yeah, I do love the Beatles. Don't get me wrong. But I, I have yeah. to go on personal pleasure and music that yeah. I'd associate with my own psychedelic experiences over the year. For me, that's that's aftermath more than Revolver, and it's between the buttons and Satanic Majesties and We Love You more than Sergeant Bleeding Pepper. And and yeah. yes. 
Look, look, that it was somewhat contrarian to say that uh, they out psychedelicized the Beatles in a way. Of course, Beatles are, are, are year zero and, and, and alpha and omega of that. But um, I would just ask um, people to listen to Going Home off Aftermath, listen to All Sold Out off Between the Buttons, um, which where Brian Wilson was actually present at the recording of, and it, it fried his tiny little mind. And um, listen to things like Citadel and 2000 Light Years From Home. These are these are good little psychedelic pop nuggets. I'd, I'd still also yeah. suggest that We Love You is one of the greatest psychedelic singles of all time. So yeah. perhaps I was not um, exactly being even-handed, but that's not my job. My job is to yeah. probably piss a few people off. Well, you should have doubled down there, Neil, and said, well, Dave D, Dozy Beak, you're making titular more psychedelic than the Beatles. No, I mean... It's what you've got to do nowadays, man, if you want to get a career as a journalist. There are things you can say like, I prefer the Monkeys to the Beatles. But, I mean, that is clearly just a wind-up. But at the same time... Oh, I prefer the Arctic Monkeys to the Beatles. Oh, my God, that's... that's Yeah, you go further, Neil. Well, no, I would say that... You know, it, it, it always comes to these ridiculous questions about kind of, if I could only listen to one or if I had... But, you know, I actually would rather hear Sometime in the Morning by the Monkeys than pretty much anything by the Beatles, but that's just me. Right, yeah. The other thing he reminds me of now, come to think of it, is uh, it, it, it just looks like Ray out of Nuts in May. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he's also dressed as Fred out of Scooby-Doo, isn't he? Yes, yeah, he is. He's got this kind of like white top on and a, and a scarf. I mean, one of the things that annoys me is it, it, there's pointless bits of the lines that just seem added to be to be mean. The line about Napoleon Brandy. Why mm. don't her lips get wet when she drinks it? I don't get that either. What, what's that supposed to... In- Uses a straw. Yeah. <laughs> what's the insinuation? And why has he got so many problems with this girl? If there's one thing we know about the 60s, or what we've been constantly told about the 60s, that it was the era that people from deprived backgrounds bursting through and taking their place amongst the elite, you know, a cultural or or whatever. And, you know, here we are in 1969, and it's like, oh, he's basically saying, oh, you think you're Summit, but I know you're not. Yeah. You're, you're yeah. all fur coat and no knickers, dog. Yeah. And we don't know what the relationship is. They could be brother and sister. They could have been childhood friends, or you know, he could, he could have given her one uh, until Sassy Gestell came along. <laughs> it's essentially, don't you want me, isn't it? But a, a lot nastier. But well, don't you want me isn't nasty. The guy singing that song is is desperate. The, the power relationship of that song. The guy's not, you know, got the mm. power in this song. That's a bit more. That's a bit more dubious. You don't know what's going on exactly. He's, he's just emitted this bolus of smuggery and. Mm. and nastiness and that's what yeah. this song is you can imagine a, yeah. a son advertising campaign where peter starts and says yeah i know marie claire and tomorrow i'm going to tell you all about her in the <laughs> sun yeah. before we even get to the emotional content of this song i think what really disgusts me the most about it as with a lot of truly deeply objectionable pop culture it's not so much what's actually in the grooves repulsive as as that is but it's what it so perfectly represents and exemplifies right like this is worthless as a pop song because it's amateurish and it's uninspired and you can see the joins where it's been hammered together Mm. um Mm. but it's also a classic example of certain really ghastly trends and tendencies within pop Mm. And as such, it becomes a magnet for all this righteous fury, which, you know, you might say more than it deserves. But no, 
if in, that's in fact precisely what it deserves because pop is in large part it's about moves and suggestion and association and impression and where it places you within your own reality mm. so when a charlatan like this blunders in uh he gets what he deserves you know and it's not disproportionate or silly to hate it as much as i or we hate this record because those are the rules of pop music and uh, you mentioned in a previous <laughs> episode of chart music this is one of your top five worst songs it is yeah didn't you taylor it is i mean first of all it encapsulates all that fake ass troubadour bullshit right mm. where some mm. clown hears bob dylan and yeah. misses the point and all he sees is the image of the poet and the storyteller like mm. up on his stool raised above the fray to a position of social and moral yeah. superiority and he thought i fancy that they won't be laughing at me then you know mm. and people who do that have no content in their soul and no meat on their personality. So it's it's like a status grab. It's like their entire act is affectation <laughs> in the pursuit of personal glory. It's an attempt by an, a fundamentally uninteresting person to reap a harvest that they didn't sow. And mm. as a result, everything that comes from it is cultural pollution. And so this isn't really pop music at all. This is something lower and less honourable posing as something superior whereas really it's it's a growth on pop it's like a polyp on pop music the man is a, a parasite <laughs> you know he's just seen an opportunity to advance himself uh so that pisses me off but then when you zoom in and examine the actual song as well as being really embarrassing to listen to it is as they always say it's nauseating partly because it is such a transparent attempt to affect this continental man-of-the-world sophistication just mm. by listing mm. things, just grabbing at tokens of European high life and all this spurious glamour uh, and just saying them, you know, and that's going to make people <laughs> think you're Dick Diver, you know, it's, it's not going to work. But also, worse than that, it tries to have it both ways by twisting around at the end to assume a position of moral superiority mm. over the subject mm. of the lyrics. Yeah. So it's a perfect blend of the pretentious and the banal and the charmlessly self-serving. And all of that stuff is everywhere in pop music. It's commonplace and often we hardly notice it or wave it through because it doesn't overwhelm the song and it doesn't outweigh whatever other charms the record has to offer. But here, that's all there is. There's nothing else. Yeah. It's just mm. this stupid, annoying, artless song with nothing else going on in it except that dumb recitation over a nursery rhyme tune, which sounds about as authentically Euro chic as the music from Allo Allo incidentally <laughs> and it's, it's everything that Scott Walker records might have been if rather than being a genius he'd been an idiot and a cunt right and <laughs> I mean I complain that by the way, that the love affair were getting attention, which should have gone to Honeybus, but fucking hell, right? As this program was being broadcast, Scott 3 has just come out and died on its ass. Mm. while this is number mm. one in the charts, right? Yeah. And First mm -hmm. of May is mm -hmm. hot on its heels. Yeah, well, fuck Britain, right? No wonder mm. Scott Walker was so pissed off about it in that interview. Yes. And if you're going to do a song like this, 
this is a technical point. At least work on the fucking lyrics so you're not shoehorning in phrases which don't even scan, right? Because mm. this song is just a lyric hanging on a on a three chords. So yeah. do a bit of work on it. Don't sing, uh, and when the snow falls, you're found in Samaritz with the <laughs> others of yeah, the yeah, yeah. <laughs> jet set. Like, <laughs> yeah. But it's horrible because... The, the, the good thing only... about that, though, Taylor, is that you, we get the full version here after hearing a, a big chunk of it at the beginning of the show. So this is this has taken up so much space in this episode of Top of the Pops. Yeah. Mm. But you get so bored of it that you start trying to sing other song lyrics to it to see if they <laughs> you know, and, and make them fit as badly as easy. So I I started singing a rat race along to this. Right, you've got your qualifications. <laughs> you've got a PhD. <laughs> I got one auto level. It meant nothing to me. No, it didn't. Ha ha ha. (laughs) Yeah, that that scans better than the real lyric. The thing I hate most about those lines that I just quoted, not only might they just as well go, something cool, something cool, something cool. Yes. Something cool that I saw on a film. Yes. It doesn't even have any flow because the syllables don't fit the tune. And yet he has the nerve to stand there like a fucking poet, like neckerchief and all. When yeah. even his basic phrasing is itchily awkward. Yeah. Uh, and another technical point I hate songs whose lyrics address someone directly and proceed to tell them a list of things which they would obviously already know. Right. Mm. <laughs> Why are you telling me this? You live in a fancy apartment off the Boulevard San Michel. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I'm aware of that. That's yeah. how I manage to get home every night. Instead of stumbling around the back streets of Wigan, going, "Oh, where do I live?" <laughs> oh, fuck. Oh. Yeah, you live in a in a fancy apartment off the Boulevard San Michel. It's a stalker song, isn't it? Yeah, but it's like it's like in a soap opera. Where people say, "Well, Keith, you." You only just got over being abducted by those Tunisian cigarette smugglers. And now you've just been told that your worst enemy, Gavin, is your real father. You know, it's like, yes. (laughs) Yeah, that's the other thing. Like most really terrible records, it it has a vortical point, which in this case is obviously the fake laugh, which Mm -hmm. is not as bad in this version where he's singing live as yeah. it is on the actual record, where it's even worse. And he yeah. says, the Aga Khan gave her a racehorse. Yeah. And then he says, and you keep it just for a laugh. <laughs> yeah. Not only is this enraging as a musical event, it also makes no fucking sense, because what's no. funny about keeping a racehorse? Mm-hmm. No, like, mm-hmm. keeping a racehorse was, is faff. Perhaps if it was Mr. Ed, and it yeah. wisecracked from over the stable door... <laughs> Yeah. Then maybe that would be cause to say ah ha 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 ha. But if it's just a lump of bloodstock that just mm. stands there munching straw and shitting around its own feet, <laughs> uh, yes. I fail to see the hilarity. No, no, unless you dress it up in yeah, silly yeah, costumes. Yeah, but you know, the, we are in a pre-Instagram uh, era, aren't we? Here, so that that'd be no mm. good. Yeah. If racehorse fail. Is a, yeah. a, <laughs> yeah. a racehorse is for life, not just for a laugh. <laughs> and in a small way, I'm also pissed off by that line near the end, right, where he says, 
And they say that when you get married, it'll be to a millionaire. Oh, no yeah. shit, because yeah. generally, idle, rich, international jet-set women marry blokes who work in chicken cottage, don't they? <laughs> so he's reported the evening standards, Londoner's diary, oh, there's not going to be a honeymoon, because if he's not available for work, he'll be sanctioned for three months <laughs> and have to eat cardboard again. <laughs> there's, a, there's, there's also there's he, it just you know he's managed to squeeze in lots of horrible things into this song, mm. but he also manages in the line um, what is it? So look into my face, Mary Claire. Remember just who you are. Then go and forget me forever. Self pity as well. Yeah. In there. Yeah. A, a yeah, huge degree there. That's just really revolting. The odd thing was listening to this. I mean, obviously none of us would expose ourselves to this record voluntarily. No, um, but it was on this episode of Top of the Pop, so I, I inevitably started hearing it again. And and what it actually reminded me of, in a contrasting kind of way, but similar kind of way, was actually um, Killer Queen by Queen, <laughs> which similarly lists a lot of, you know, bohemian type yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, but that song is not only a much, much, much better song, interesting mm. musically and everything else, but it's generous in spirit, you know, and that's right. what's key. And, yeah. and Sarstedt has none of that at all. No. Well, that's the worst. Yeah, at the end, when we're meant to gasp, spellbound, as he reveals the twist that they're both yeah. of humble origins, but what it turns out that what's really pissing him off is not some sort of spiritual emptiness on the part of this woman at which he's pointing a a bony finger. You know, it's that while she's off getting an even suntan on her mm. back and on her legs, <laughs> he isn't right. Yeah. And, yeah, and he's just moaning about it. That's all it is. <laughs> And it's like as if he's astonished at, at what's happened. And it's like, well, Pete, for a start, what do you fucking expect? Because it's a known fact that really good-looking women, if they choose, don't have to pay for anything and can get as far as they like in terms of status if they're prepared to shut up and become objects of desire. Now, if you've actually got something to say about this, which, after all, demeans both sexes and is sort of a reasonable grouse then let's hear it but no he's just moaning and yeah. <laughs> sneering about the fact that a lovely elegant italian girl with a french name has managed to freeload and piggyback more successfully than a mm. some big nose <laughs> cunt with a droopy mustache right? <laughs> who by right should be busking on the piccadilly line for 25p mm. and Six francs and a toffee wrapper. Well, I mean, fucking hell, who'd have thought? Yeah, who'd have thought that someone with one thing to offer would go further than someone with nothing to offer? <laughs> yeah, what a surprise. It's one of those particularly antagonising records because everyone who liked it likes it for reasons that make it repulsive. So it was liked, presumably, for the simplicity of the arrangement. You know, you've just got an acoustic guitar and accordion. There's no drums on it, is there? And uh, I think that's about it. An acoustic guitar and accordion, that is exactly what's so fucking drearily awful about this record. The go-nowhere arrangement, the rotation of the chords no. and the melody with these horrible, horrible words. Yeah. The only joy in this whole scenario is that for Peter Sarstedt the title of this song would prove bitterly ironic mm. and, <laughs> and thank God for that you know give me Robin Sarstedt any day at least he's a at least yeah. he's a weirdo you know what I mean I just wish an answer record had been done <laughs> I was just about to say that by I don't know Betty Davis or something just or yes. Hilda Baker <laughs> <laughs> the answer be were sorry who are you again yeah yeah <laughs> 
And that that is a really the, the, sorry. There's just I know we've basically talked about pretty much all the lyrics in this, but the line that again I really don't like is um, "Then go and forget me forever." But I know you still bear the scar deep inside. Yes, you do. What is that about? Mm. Um, yeah, I don't want to know actually what that's about. Um, but... and, and and if and if she's looking into his face, is it is, is this some kind of um, Michael Fagan deal going on? <laughs> <laughs> Taylor, you did mention that this was one of your top five songs. Got to ask. Oh, no. I'm going to keep that under my hat. I oh, could, well, no. That would have been the next four chart musics. Sorted yeah, that's what out. I was worried about. So, where do you go to my lovely spent two more weeks at number one before being dragged off the top by I Heard It Through the Grapevine by Marvin Gaye? Oh, thank you, Marvin. Mm, cheers, Marvin. But the song was the fifth biggest selling single in the UK in 1969 and, as Nils pointed out, would be the joint winner of the Ivor Novello Award for the best song of 1969 with Space Oddity by David Bower. The follow-up, Frozen Orange Juice, got to number 10 in July of this year, but that same month he and Radio 1 got into some right shit when the Radio 1 Club broadcast him playing a session of the song Take Off Your Clothes. News story in July of 1969. Filth shocks the radio fans. A BBC radio official apologised yesterday for broadcasting what a listener heard. The biggest load of filth I've ever heard. The filth, a song about a man seducing a virgin, went out on the popular Radio 1 Club programme. Listeners protested after hearing some of the words sung by 27-year-old pop star Peter Sarstedt. The BBC official said several songs were pre-recorded on tape for the programme. I should think that this one probably crept in by mistake. (laughs) One listener who complained, Mr Ron Radford, (laughs) 47 of Enfield Middlesex, said, My wife and I had two children visiting us and we were really appalled. The song, Take Off Your Clothes, is published by Mortimer Music. A secretary there said, Peter does change the words when he does a session. I should think the BBC went mad when they heard it. Oh, Ron Raphael, I bet he he put his foot through the radio, he did. (laughs) Have you heard it? No. It's it's Peter Sarsef doing a sex at us. Okay. He he deploys the that um, Roger Daltrey did in my generation. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's been spending too much time on the continent. Picked up some of those dirty ways. Denmark, well, (laughs) say no more, eh? I'll tell you what I've also never heard, which is uh, frozen orange juice. Yeah, yeah. which I I hear, I hear people people saying it's good, is it? I've never actually bothered. It's um, a much better title. Well, it's shaking Cat Stevens, to be honest. Oh, great. (laughs) This faff didn't stop the BBC offering him his own Wednesday night TV show on BBC Two, which began in October, and a weekly show on Radio One. But his next single, As Though It Were a Movie, with Take Off Your Clothes on the B-side, flopped, and he never troubled the UK charts again. He spent the early 70s shuckling between London and Copenhagen to be with his now wife, turning down another BBC show because he didn't like an unnamed co-host. Well, Scylla or Lulu, isn't it? Mm. 
reuniting with his brothers in 1973 for the LP Worlds Apart Together, launched a series of comebacks and ended up as a regular guest on the Solid Silver 60s tour at the end of the century, retiring from music in 2010 and dying at the age of 75 in January 2017. That BBC show was basically billed as a, a an aware young songwriter takes on different subjects every week. It's veering very mm. alarmingly into still-go territory there, I think. <laughs> wow. and, and, and also, I mean, we should always bear in mind, no matter how nasty we've been about him, yeah. he made 60 grand a year PRS from that song mm. for most of the rest of his life. So, mm. you know, there you go. So he was the one looking at us and going, ah, ha, 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 ha. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the box that surround you Cause I can look inside your And where do you go to, my lovely? Can he hold it for a third week? Next Thursday night, I wonder. Anyway, that's well though. Next Thursday night, 7.30 for another sparkling edition of Top of the Pops. Ta-ra! Having arrested another girl who was probably nicking some roll-on mum, instructs us to tune in next week to see if Peter Sarstedt can hold off Marvin Gaye and signs off as the kids start making the scene to Top of the Pops by the Dave Devaney Four, which was the second Top of the Pops theme, which was first used in 1965 until it was retired in January 1966 in favour of unknown instrumental guitar track. But it's been the sign-off music ever since, which is fucking thick, because they could have got another record off the charts in here, a good one for mm. a change. I like this closing wig out, though. It, 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 yes. It has me falling in love again all over the shop. There's a girl with sunglasses on her head and what looks like a sort of feeler or Didas top on. Um, it isn't, obviously, but... Um, no. Yeah. Um, Maybe and, Umbro. Yeah. But she looks fucking amazing. Uh, but I can't mm. tell, again, whether she's a pro-go-go type dancer or just one of the punters. But we do get a blissful couple of minutes with the punters here. Yeah, we get we see that woman who's been there right through the show who's got this horrible knitted crochet long waistcoat kind of thing that looks like the kind of thing Stan Butler's man would uh, <laughs> would wear if she, was, if she was going out for a rave up at the Derby and Joan. <laughs> so, what's on telly afterwards? Well, BBC One immediately pitches into the police drama Softly Softly. Then after the news, it's Sports Night with Coleman, which covered the National Hunt Jockey Show Jumping Championship of Great Britain. Then it's Holiday 69 with Cliff Mitchellmore or... I think I've seen that video. <laughs> the news show, 24 hours, news and weather, Viewpoint, the documentary series which covers St. Richard of Chichester, and they close out the night with a thriller series, Suivez la piste. Ah, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> BBC Two 
has just come out of newsroom and piles straight into the money programme. Then Jazz at the Maltins features the Dizzy Gillespie Big Band reunion. Then 30 Minute Theatre features the Polish war drama A Hot Day. Horizon examines why the youth are turning their backs on science. Then it's the final part of the Dostoevsky drama The Possessed. And they finish the night with news and weather and late night lineup. ITV has another hour of the film to go. Then it's the pre-porridge prison sitcom Her Majesty's Pleasure. Then this week, News at 10, a look at the career of Gina Lollobrigida in cinema. James Fox and Orson Bean pitch up in The Eamon Andrews Show. There's a look at the papers and they finish off with some feminist blather in The Second Sex. So, me boys, what are we talking about in the playground tomorrow if we were around for playground activity i would say stevie probably and the, and, the absolute highlight of the yeah, show and the pretty ladies oh or how amazing it must be to be peter sarstedt and to actually <laughs> know slinky bohemian women with aristocratic airs who you haven't just made up to make yourself sound interesting by association and so mm. that you can then insult them what are we buying on saturday stevie wonder yeah, yeah, that's probably wonder. all, which is a bit of a shame, but never mind, yeah. it's the 60s, plenty of fun <laughs> to be there. And what does this episode tell us about the spring of 1969? Stodge rules the pop charts, and mm. Rock is on the other side of the room with its arms yeah. folded, very visibly not getting involved. Uh, yeah. But also it's partly because the media hasn't adapted to the change in the times, and because... No one's yet been able to build or rebuild that bridge between nihilism, decadence and outsiderism and the young teenage audience, but that will come. And when it does, the sixfenties will be over. At this point, pop and rock, well, rock's fine somewhere, but we need the electricity of rock in pop and we're not getting it here. What we're getting is some shuffling acoustic balladry most often. The most pleasurable sound you hear in this entire episode is the sound of Stevie Wonder's keyboard. Um, We need Mm. more kettle leads in pop music is what is what's being said here. And that's going to happen in a couple of years when pop and a rock sense gets more interesting. But at the moment, yeah, stodge all the way. Yeah, I mean... As far as I'm concerned, you can clip out the Stevie Wonder bit and a few bits of the crowd dancing and you can just shove the rest down the memory hole as far as I'm concerned. I mean, (laughs) you know, we've got to stress that this is a colour TV show that we're watching in very shonky black and white. Mm. But I've seen other music television from around this era and it just pisses on this episode from an enormous height. I mean, as far as the music goes... You know, I have to compare this to the 1971 we saw, which was broadcast 11 months from now. And we were raving about that because you could see things like the Jackson 5 and John Lennon doing instant karma and going, ah, yeah, you can see a future for pop music here. In this episode, you just can't. It's just loads of bands winding down to a close, uh, solo singers uh, getting ready for, you know, light entertainment careers. the greatest decade in world history is coming to an end. They're selling hippie wigs in Woolworths. Well, I mean, as as we'll see through, as we always see on chart music, fantastic year for music, shit, shit year for Top of the Pops. You know? The great thing about this episode, apart from Stevie Wonder, was Alan Freeman. Uh, this would be the last year that he presented Top of the Pops. And on this showing, he could have gone for a few more years. 
And, uh, you know, if he'd have been the go-to person for Top of the Pops, as opposed to Savile, um, things would have been a lot better. Mm. And that, pop craze youngsters, brings us to the end of another episode of Chart Music. All that remains now is the usual promotional flange, www.chart-music.co.uk, facebook.com slash chartmusicpodcast, Twitter at chartmusictotp, money down the G-string, patreon.com slash chartmusic. Peace and love, Taylor Parks. All right. Stay bright, Neil Kulkarne. Cheers, Bab. My name's Al Needham, and I can look inside your head. (laughs) Chart music. Hi, pop figures. <laughs> this is clean speech from a dirty old man. This is Brentford Nylons, the money savers, where you can save pounds on nylon sheets, bedspreads, housecoats, nighties, and of course, top quality polyester cotton sheets in prints and planes. Only from Brentford Nylons, the money savers. <clears throat> There's the music, and here I am in here like that, and thing, 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 thing. Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, and Pick of the Pops, and. And here we are on Radio 1 and 2. And there it is like that. And it's, uh, uh, tears of a, hmm? Yeah. Mm. All right. Is that okay? Ladies, when Brentfords lowered their sale price of blankets, they sold thousands. When they reduced their sale price of polyester cotton sheets to 169, you bought in millions. You keep buying and they'll keep the prices down. All right? Noel Edmonds is, um... Brentford's Sale of Blankets. Buy a second single at one twenty-nine and save £2.30. Brentford's Sale of Polycotton Sheets and Flannelettes in Prints and Planes from one seventy-nine. Save pounds. A new washing powder has beaten Omo. It's new Blue Star Omo with WM7, an exclusive new fabric brightener. The Omo research team developed nine new fabric brighteners and found that WM7 came out best because in every single type of washing machine, and this is a hot point, it added an extra brightness. Even white nylon stays whiter. Now, we're not going to say this powder is a wash day miracle, but we do promise you this, that the extra brightness from WM7 will build up in your wash each time you use Blue Star Omo. You'll see new brightness in your very first wash, but your next will be even brighter, and your next building up to this marvellous extra brightness. Blue Star Omo works on all your wash. Even white nylon stays whiter. So get a packet of Blue Star Omo with exclusive WM7 and see how it goes on adding extra brightness to perfect whiteness. Now here's the top two. All right now from three up to number two. Blue Mr. Blow from Mr. Blow. Same number one on the side down. Number I can't be bothered today. <laughs> now, wait, I've got to do it again, because I mistimed it somewhere. I think the word is fucked it up. <laughs> I do hope I'm not on relay. <laughs> and if I am, may I say fuck again?
Retired springmaker Harold Court has been annoying the regulars at the White Lion in Redditch for years. He keeps on telling them that the Americans never landed on the moon. It was all a con trick. He mooned on about it so much that his offbeat opinions appeared in his local paper. And before you could say blast off, a postcard arrived from Florida. Neil Armstrong, the first man to walk on the moon, had heard about Harold, and he gave him a rocket in the form of a postcard. I think there's uh, somebody got some relatives in America, and I passed it on to Neil Armstrong. And so suddenly, one day, through your door came this postcard. Yeah. And it said, Dear Harold, it's been brought to my attention about an article printed in your local paper that you don't believe that I and my fellow lunar modular pilots have been to the moon. I can assure you that we have, as this picture of my friend Edwin Aldrin Jr. will prove. All the best for the future, Neil Armstrong. Well, you must believe it now, then. Well, I thought it was very nice of him. But did you believe then that he'd been to the moon? No. Why not? Oh, we don't. So what, what were the pictures, then, that we were seeing on the moon? Where do you think they really were? Well, I can't think of anywhere that was better than Port Cole. It come to my mind. I've been there, and there's plenty of sand and rocks. And uh, I might have been uh, kicking the rails on there. we still got the best engineers in the, in the world today, in this country, although folks don't appreciate it. And uh, if I couldn't get one up there... You don't believe the Americans could, then? No. So you still don't believe that the Americans went to the moon? No. Nothing can convince you? Nothing. If there was a new moon, and I was a shooting across space like they say I would, well, I'd have to, wouldn't I? Shoot across space. If it was a new moon, as we see it from here, I'd miss it. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.